Greetings, ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this weekly roundup of Tales, Tales from Out Space. Taken from the released videos over the last week from 828 to 841. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Timestamps will be in the description. Tales from Outer Space 828. Story number one. A bail rider returns from exile, written by Admiral Marsupial III. It had been 200 years since Cole had been exiled from the galactic community, sent through the only portal ever deliberately created to hell for his attempts to bring down the galactic parliament and destroy a way of life that ensured stability for eons. His name, face, and voice were still recognized throughout the cosmos. The sedacious traitor whose mere mention still gave leaders across the Milky Way a chill down their spine, or its species equivalent, which is why every intelligence agency and investigation organization in the galaxy was trying to work out if the broadcast that went out across all spacefaring systems announcing his imminent return was real or a hoax for which someone was going to be executed. Before they could find out, it was answered for them. A second broadcast was received, and this one could be tracked. The signal had been traced to an unknown fleet approaching inhabited space. What had truly terrified the members of the Galactic Parliament was what he had said. Carl returning was no longer what everyone was worried about. It was how he ended his latest message that was causing widespread riots across the galaxy. I am here for vengeance, and I am bringing hell with me. Despite the mass panic, militaries across the galaxy scrambling together, the largest fleet ever assembled, and raced to head off the approaching fleet of the damned. The fleet admiral was confident, even with the understandable fear lurking in the back of his mind. The fleet assembled, outnumber Carl's approaching forces ten to one, and was made up of the pinnacle of military technology over a hundred races. Even against such a legendary military tactician such as Carl, they knew that they would be victorious. Then the battle started. They had encountered Carl's tactical knowledge being even sharper than when he'd been exiled, or him now having access to unknown technologies. The Halfleet tore through the Allied forces, it seemed to have a counter for every weapon and tactic that they used. While its unknown weapons ripped through the shields and armor like it was designed specifically to exploit every weakness, every ship was disabled and left drifting in the void as the warfleet of Hal carried on to Utan Station, seat of power of the whole galaxy. Seeing this unstoppable fleet approaching, Many representatives of the species that made up the parliament started sending desperate messages to the Hellfleet. Some wanted to negotiate, some just begging to be spared. The one everyone heard was from the prime representative, leader of the Galactic Alliance, as it was broadcast live. Call! Listen to reason. Look at the violence erupting across the galaxy. Is one man's vengeance worth all the deaths of the people you claim to be standing for when you were banished? Stay your hand, or we will be forced to unleash the black ship. Around the galaxy, people froze. 
The black ship was a legendary myth to bust, a weapon so terrible it had never been deployed. It could tear entire fleets apart. The only reason it was never used was that a weapon was made a hyperspace travel impossible for light years around for years, and the psychic shock destroyed all life, ren and foe. That's anywhere near any system that it was used in. The galaxy held its breath, waiting for Kahal's response. You dare threaten me with a black ship? It's former captain. Do you honestly think I hadn't planned for that? Hadn't already neutralized it, captured it, and turned it to my cause before I announced my return? You think I'm here for my own personal vengeance? You can't sway me from my cause with the threats and bribes. I am your end, your final judgment. When you banished me all those years ago, you made one massive miscalculation. You assumed the inhabitants of hell were mindless beasts of wrath and destruction, which they may have been a millennia ago last time we saw them. But by the time I was sent there, they had evolved, matured, and were now not only intelligent, but reasonable too. They would have reached here in another hundred years, even without my help and knowledge. And when they found out about the vassal status that you inflict on new races that ascend, the servitude that you inflict on them, that you still inflict on a thousand worlds to this day, let's just say... It wasn't fate that they were going to accept. As the ship approached the parliament, radiating a bright light that almost blinded those who looked upon it. The last transmission of Uton Station would ever receive was broadcast. Not Kahal's voice this time, but the chorus of voices of those who had followed him. Behold, a pale steed, and his rider name was Freedom, and Hal follows him. And power was given to him over the galaxy to kill with a railgun, and hunger for liberty, and with death to tyrants, and with the beasts of Earth. End of story. Story number two. The Hunter's Game, written by the Stabby Brett. The Hunter came charging into the valley, war horns of his battle walker blaring a challenge to the human soldiers before him. The eight-meter-tall machine bounded forward at fifty miles per hour, chin guns breaking the Terran infantry regiments as they scattered before him. Speakers boomed his laughter as their feeble guns chanted harmless rounds against his carapace. Audio receptors recorded the screams of those who crushed beneath his arm feet. From behind the distant rise came a trio of dust plumes. The hunter almost missed them at first, so lost was he in the wanton slaughter of the infantry. There were Terran jewel tanks rushing to the fight on anti-grav before dropping into bracing tracks to maximize their accuracy. The hunter's quills trembled with rage as he registered presence. His beak opened and cursing as their opening salvo thundered across the valley. Yet, they were too hasty in their desire to save their comrades, causing two of the hypersonic shells to fly wide and the third to glance the walker's carapace, dealing only superficial damage. 
with worthy praise, signed the Hunter Dropolo and brought his auto cannons to bear. Two of the dual tanks took flight, firing their coaxial guns as they withdrew. The third held his ground, landing a second glancing hit on the hunter's torso before vanishing in a storm of explosive rounds. Atomic missiles streaked skywards as the hunter charged, bellowing challenges and heedless of the mere infantry that wasted their bullets and grenades against him. Two of the missiles were lost in the flight, and a third fell short, hitting the wrong side of the rock rise and blasting an impressive but futile crater into the earth. The vault slammed home through the turret of the second tank and atomized it, sending dust and shrapnel raining down for half a kilometer. It was this mad overkill that doomed the hunter. Dust and electromagnetic backlash blinded him, and in the confusion, the gunner of the third tank engaged, relying on his own eyes where the targeting scanners had failed. The slug tore the walker's left arm off at the elbow, a second crippled the knee. The hunter roared in fury and unloaded everything that he had in return, bowing death to his foe. He was still bellowing hatred as a third shell smashed clean through the crew space and detonated the remaining missiles, killing everything within 400 meters of the walker. A hatch on the hunter's right hissed open, filling the cockpit with a harsh white light. A human in crimson and grey waved at him and asked him with a smile, How was it? It was glorious, the hunter roared, beak clacking excitedly as the battle thrill of the simulated death ebbed away. I wish to go again. This time they will not outsmart me. Okay, going again. Maybe save those big missiles this time, yeah? There's tougher things out there than tanks later in the level. The hunter chirped with glee, and the hatch closed, and the simulator came back to life. He stood atop a valley, watching lines of human soldiers clash with soldiers of the war clan. He flexed his talons against the haptic pads, tapped his fingers lightly against the triggers, and murred his quills soaked in the data from the head web. He was alive. Alive to fight the wondrous war as many times as he desired through the marvels of Terran technology. Uniquely, amongst all the species of the galaxy, had man conceived of such a thing as electronic conflict for sport. War horns blaring and a song of battle in his throat, the hunter charged into the valley. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 829 Story number 1 Ancient Rituals Written by Rosie013 Devon hastily inspected the garb of the latest individual to knock at the secret door of his nearly forgotten part of the city. It was difficult to tell exactly in the gloom of dusk, but it seemed to be adequate for admittance. He stepped back and indicated that the visitor enter. He didn't know who was a near stranger or a long-time friend. The ornate face mask obscured their identity. Between this and the ever-present darkness, he wasn't even sure if the latest guest was male or female. It wouldn't be the last individual to show up tonight of all nights, but it was the last one needed to reach the minimum threshold for the ancient yearly ritual to begin. 
and his role of priest of rites. Devar could now lead his charges to a bountiful year ahead once more. He indicated to the side table, stacked with small fortune of worldly goods and decorative scriptures, and the latest guest obediently placed their offering upon the table of sacrifice. The other cultists watched amid a muffled conversation, their symbolic giving already made. Devar made an appropriate gesture, and the conversation stopped as they shuffled around the central table, standing evenly spaced, waiting eagerly. With another gesture, Dovar's appearance disappeared momentarily, and then reappeared with a young child in tow, his face the only one uncovered in the room. The poor boy was nearly in tears. Perfect. Tears were desirable, if not strictly required. It was an omen of good things to come in the year ahead. The child was made to approach the table in the middle of the room and hold onto the candle bra resting at the center, heavily gilt and ending in several wicked-looking prongs. The relic was probably as old as the ritual itself, if not older. The truth of its origin was lost to time, like so much of the old days. It really was too bad it had to be a fresh child every year. There was no way to teach them how to behave for the ceremony without breaking the secrecy requirements. Devar leaned in, set the stubby husks of stagnant wax gunpowder candles alight. The darkness in the room retreated a little, creating deeper and almost demonic shadows madly dancing in the firelight. The sense of dirty smoke and old sweat filled the room. The boy's sobs rose just a little. Sitting right on the edge of hearing, he did not know what was coming, but could feel it nonetheless. The ritual would have added the side effect of inducting him into the ancient order, the first step to becoming one of the cultists, and if he was lucky, the journey to priesthood. Slowly, Devar and his apprentice began to chant. Picking up the rhythm, the cultists quickly joined in, all eyes either on the boy or the flames. The words are all, and their meanings lost, yet each is pronounced clearly and concisely, lest they accidentally stray into unknown territories of unknowable gods. The power of the chant grows steadily to a crescendo, and Devar breaks the pattern with a repeated cry at odds with the ceremony so far. As one, the cultists reply with a single deafening cheer, and this is repeated thrice. Without warning, the candles go out at once, replacing the near darkness with total darkness, and the boy's sobs become a steady cry. After a moment, everyone's eyes readjust to the gloom, confirming that the boy had not let go of the artifact. Success! Nervous chatter and quiet laughter take over the small space, as the cultists let their relief show. Devar lets them. He can hardly contain his own satisfaction at another successful performance. Time to loosen the boy's grip and comfort him. After a few minutes, the assistant brings forth the meal of contemplation, the simple, plain sugared bread cake from times gone. It is the poorest meal any of them will eat all year, but it is a time of appreciation of simple things to reflect of a ritual and exactly what kind of bounty it may bring in the coming months. Mouth full of crumbly but sweet bread cake, 
devour wonders, the same mysteries that priests and rites have always been wondering for centuries. Who exactly was happy birthday, and what kind of god was he to require such a yearly appeasement? End of story. Story number two. Owls, then. Written by Rosie013. Gita Zix looked down at his beak and over his half-moon glasses at the smaller ambassador. He didn't squirm or fidget, although she should be. In fact, the human ambassador should be overly vocal with gratitude. There wasn't. She sat calmly, waiting for the full explanation to this emergency meeting. Maybe the human genuinely didn't know. Impossible. How any species could be so indifferent of the suffering of its own kind was beyond him. Fighting back a deep sigh, Gitazix decided to start from the beginning. He politely explained to the human ambassador that during a routine welfare check of the restless deceased, his people had discovered a band of stranded humans that appeared to be crash survivors. The crew had made efforts to recover them, but were unable due to the hostile nature of the Hellworld. He slid a data slate over to the diminutive human. On it were several images taken from high orbit of the volcanically active planet, heavily zoomed in and in poor quality due to the prevalent heat haze. Despite this, the images clearly showed a cluster of shanty buildings and a nearby earthworks. One of the building's roofs marked with the symbol of humanity. After a moment of scrolling through the offered slate, the human asked Gitazix what exactly he meant by restless deceased. Ah, that was the confusion. Humans must be one of those species that had their hull on the other side of the veil of time. He can't check on the dead if there is no way to get to them. Poor bastards. Slowly, as did not overwhelm the human ambassador with this information, he explained that when his people died, if they had been uh, morally unjust in their lives, then their soul went to a howl to be punished. This was well-known fact and had been for several millennia. It was why their empire was so little crime. Their souls would endure suffering, the likes of which could not be found anywhere else in the known universe. If a ship of humans had crashed there, they would suffering torments not meant for the likes of the living beings. They would have to be rescued with the highest priority. She took this in thoughtfully, before asking why they performed welfare checks on their dead. Was the ambassador daft? Wasn't it obvious? No, Gitazix couldn't, shouldn't pass judgment. How were the humans to know his people's ways? They were still fresh to the galactic sea, and their two cultures had not yet had much contact with one another. It wasn't the ambassador's fault for not understanding. Even if the human seeming indifferences to the blight of other humans was disturbing. Gitazix explained that when a soul was redeemed, then they could manually be transported to the heaven world. A soul was considered to be redeemed when their demons grew disinterested in its suffering. The human considered this, then asked if that meant the planet belonged to the Empire. He barely contained his frustration. Humans were clearly not an empathetic creatures. His response was almost yelled across the meeting room table. Of course not! Who in the right mind would want it? The silence stretched. 
Ejizix had calmed down and was beginning to regret his outburst when the human ambassador spoke up, quietly but firmly. How's then? Ejizix was stunned, silent. The human didn't seem to mind, instead opting for an explanation. Easily accessible rare earth metals in a molten rock, only a couple of earthquakes every year, and the acid rain isn't half as bad as it was back home a hundred years ago. As for the demons, we call them cats, and they're actually native to our home world. We have no idea how wild population of them got out there. Our latest mining colony is growing fast and looking like it will be very profitable over the next few centuries. The silence grew louder. Don't worry, we won't interfere with the souls of your dead. After the human ambassador had left the room, Gitizix nervously groomed some of the feathers to help calm himself. Thank the gods that these meetings were recorded. The council would never believe this otherwise. The humans on the Howl world didn't need rescuing. All of humanity needed rescuing. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 830 Story number one. Meeting the Gods. Written by Admiral Marsupial Three. Natura had an uneasy feeling. For 250,000 years, she had attended the gatherings, welcoming each new race and their patron to the galactic stage. Every time, it had been a joyous occasion, but something about these humans had her on edge. 300,000 years ago, the follower of Discurio, a god of science and learning, and the late Armin's patron, had reached the stars and spoken to their god. With his guidance, they learned that their beginning that there were gods of the universe. Although these gods were benevolent, they couldn't agree on how the universe should proceed. Each god tried to shape it to their own image, and nothing but chaos reigned. So a deal was made. Each of the gods went to their own part of the universe and nurtured their own planet. The denizens of this world would be how the patrons would interact with the universe. Discurio was showed them the location of this new pantheon, the only place where the beings of the universe could interact with the gods from beyond their veil. For each race would meet their patron and welcome the new race as they reached the stars. The Tura had been the first to meet Discurio, and with the immortality it granted her, had been at the new pantheon for the greeting of every new race. She looked at the assembled races who waited for the humans and their patron, Guyana, the god of life with the interior race he guided to the stars and bioships, Consta, god of order and peace, with the attack who helped the weak and the struggling. These two had been next to ascend, following the Omnians 50,000 and 60,000 years later respectively. Since then, almost a hundred more had joined. From Flashover, God of Speed, to Garnilla, God of Pleasure, all the way up to latest edition not 1,000 years ago, Brasseth, God of Games. And now, everyone was trying to work out who the next one would be, which made Brasseth's representative Altwerp very happy. The betting pool he had set up was going crazy, and the bets spread across so many eventualities he was winning bigger than any punter no matter what the new patron was. From what was known of the humans, the bets had ranged from everything from Immobilus, god of endurance, to Ulmachdon, god of agriculture. 
but Lachira couldn't shake an uneasy feeling. And as the humans entered the main chamber of the new pantheon, and it expanded to accommodate the new patron throne, Lachira looked at the divine entrance with a knot in her stomach. It was much worse than she imagined. The divine entrance opened. The first thing everyone saw was a dark white flames, giving off bright black smoke, and a terrifying being strode through the door. Rigid wings clamped to its back as chains flowed freely around it, its grayish blue skin radiating heat that made everyone in the new pantheon shiver. In Smangcha, the god of chaos. Born in the chaotic maelstrom, the gods created in the beginning before the deal. It looked at the assembled races and screeched in its booming voice. You thought your deal would rescue your universe from me. That without your bickering I would cease to be. No, you may have cut me off from the universe directly. But I survived. I found my own corner of the universe and created my own representatives. Unlike you who wrapped your children in padding, I chose to forge them in a harsh death well, having them fight against their very home to scrape out an existence. And when they had conquered that planet and everything on it, I turned them against the only worthy opponent they had left each other. And then I spread to the stars, and unlike your coddling weaklings, I didn't rush them here so that they could live a fat and weak in comfort. I left them to fight the cold expanse of space themselves, threw asteroids and supernovas at them, and made them recover on their own. And still they spread through the stars. Those that survive now are hardened avatars of chaos that will once again tear down all you, old dear. The humans had been known as a tough martial race, but this new revelation put all their history in a much more terrifying light. The humans moved forward from the spot under Ismancha, separating into groups that approached each of the assembled patrons. Burn represented Valconelia, frozen fear as the largest group of humans approached him. He knew he was doomed. Watching his muncher's studying of the human history, he saw that although they were a young race, leaving them alone to face the cold void for a thousand years after their ascension to the heavens, had hardened them into a force the ascended races didn't stand a chance when they attacked. The human reached Vern as he looked into the eyes of the Avatar of Chaos. Nothing in all of his visions of destruction and pain that was flashing through his mind could predict what these destroyers made flesh would say next. Can we join you? Our god seems to be a little bit of a dick. End of story. Story number two. The Sleeper, written by Digital 332006. Senior Officer Talar could barely hide his excitement from the rest of the crew. He practically floated in the mid-air from the sheer optimism emanating from his mood. It was to be expected, however, as his name would likely go down in the history forever, due to the discovery of his. They had told him that there wasn't anything here, and if he had been an ounce less persistent, this find wouldn't have been possible. He'd run the sensor check three times, 
systems, adjusting for every possible permutation of residual gamma detection until he had landed a hit. To think that they'd found a still living precursor. Deep under the surface, in a small type of bunker, they had found a room full of ancient precursor technology. What boggled the mind, however, was the various eras of technology present. The bunker itself was highly advanced, indicating that it was built in the last 200 years of the precursor's time before they vanished. But inside, many pieces of equipment dated back to a solid seven to eight hundred years before the bunker's construction. How or why would the precursors use such an outdated technology when more recent things were available? The bunker had kept most of the equipment in excellent condition. They were confident that some of it might even work if provided power. The biggest find, however, was at the far side of the room where a living precursor was still alive. Granted, it was in a cryopod of this moment. A cryopod that they had no idea how to open without harming the precious precursor inside, but the hope was all that they needed. Indeed, many would venerate this being for simply existing, since it was them who seeded life elsewhere in the galaxy, according to most archaeological evidence. They were essentially the universe's parents, so to speak. For now, the Iteran government had been keeping this a secret, but news would come out eventually, drawing unwanted attention over the find, and as such, time was of the essence. It took three teams working around the clock a little over two weeks to learn how to operate the console. Even by precursor standards, this was ancient technology, making any examples they currently possessed almost useless in trying to reverse engineer this particular one. We're ready whenever you are, sir, answered one of the aides. Do it, came back to Lars's reply. The moment was finally at hand. The precursor cryopod decompressed and slowly awoke its inhabitant. Oh, what words of wisdom would this ancient being that had been there in the age of glory have to share with them? What advancements would they help by giving them insights into the way their technologies worked? Perhaps now they would be able to create new artificial intelligence, precursor AI being above their skill to replicate successfully and awfully in short supply after all these years. He always wondered how the precursors made the AI so helpful. Homicidal was the only word that could be described when the recent AI tests had been. Like a hundred-year-old military canned ration, the pod hissed and the glass door slowly raised itself, the coolant creating a fine mist, obscuring the precursor's body. The crew held its breaths, waiting for something to happen. None dared move or blink, so as to not miss the moment. A voice croaked from the mist and coughed twice. Just five more minutes. <clears throat> the precursor paused before resuming. Is it 2358 yet? Delar moved forward to step and looked at the being. It was slightly over two meters tall with long, elongated limbs, just like the records portrayed them. Some blue fabric enveloped most of his body, except for his extremities. Not sure what frame of reference that is using, but it is currently star date 34007.6, replied the chief science officer. The human blinked and rubbed its eyes, adjusting to the light and the warmer room temperature. Look, is Half-Life 3 out yet? I, uh, 
I have no idea. Let me check, replied Talar, before turning to one of his aides and signaling him to look it up in the database. The aide interfaced with the database and then shook his head negatively. Um, he cursed inwardly. If it was the first thing the precursor asked for after coming back to consciousness, it must have been rather important, and they could not find anything related to it. I'm sorry. It appears we have nothing on record that matches the... Then fuck off, came back the abrupt reply from the human. The human extended out an arm, tapping a few keys on the console, and returned inside the cryopod to the stunned stupefaction of everyone present. Should we, um... Open it again, asked one of the chief scientist's aides. Upon further reflection, no, I don't think that would be a good idea. We should let him rest, replied a dejected Talar, packing up his equipment to leave. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 831 Story number one. Is it random bullcrap from stupid apes, or is it genius beyond our understanding? It is well known that almost all human battles are run with war-mine AIs, pinnacles of digital creation that can absorb all available data about its surroundings, from the visual readings of every camera within a thousand miles, to the sounds collected from a million microphones. Every public system and device that could give data was at its command. This was backed up by scanning equipment in a network of the most advanced military support units in the galaxy and data insights shared with it by its linked Warmind brethren. It knew everything about the troops it was entrusted with, their strengths, their weaknesses, hopes and dreams, their missions and their retirement plans. Their one focus in their entire existence was to come up with a way for them to do that mission and to get them home in the safest, most efficient and most effective way possible. Because they were operating at levels exponentially higher than those any biological being could ever function at. Because they were considering the millions of possible effects at every moment, every possible action unfolding before them. And because they understood those interactions on a level is almost one with the universe itself. Some of their orders were still a little... odd. The public knew of the weird orders that after the battle were revealed to be genius commands that turned the tide of battle by finding the only solution to impossible situations. Such as when a squad was ordered to start an immediate, loud and enthusiastic signal of Sweet Carolina on a supposedly stealthy scouting mission. Just as the squad reached the loudest part of the chorus, the enemy attempted its teleport attack, promptly had its eardrums collectively shattered as was easily dispatched before the unarmed humans escaped. Having intercepted communication saying that squad's heat signatures had been picked up and was being targeted by the Kalexi teleport shock squad, the war mind had realized that it wouldn't win a straight fight, and if the ship wasn't ready for hyperjump as soon as the troops were aboard it, it wouldn't make it a mile off the surface. The Kalexis had a vulnerability to certain sound frequencies at not an impossible-to-reach volume. Getting the troops to start singing Sweet Carolina at the correct time had led to the correct note at more than a suitable volume, just at the perfect time. Or in one story that had accidentally leaked to much embarrassment, the 13% upswing in public approval for the armed forces was fortunate and totally unforeseen side effect, honest. An entire base of 200 male human troops, none of whom had left the base for three months, 
We're told to look at as much porn as possible on as many devices as possible, and all filters and site blockers were removed. No one knew why until the cybersecurity unit showed up two hours later. About an hour after the order, the base's systems had been subjected to a cyber attack. The accumulated viruses and malware that had now infested the base's systems had damaged and slowed the enemy AI attacking them. This allowed the Warmind to focus on keeping the vital systems and databases secure and uncorrupted until the cybersecurity unit could arrive and deal with the threat properly. When the enemy aircraft attempted a bombing run and the automated air defenses were still up, the enemy's plan became even clearer. The public were never told about the ones that never made sense even after the battle. But the military people always knew. Everyone had at least one. But the fiercer and longer the fighting, the more likely the really weird orders were to come. The more the troops were just hanging on, the more bizarre orders happened more often. The troops always saw it as a kind of comforting in a weird way. That war was so fricked up, even specifically designed warmind AIs would throw stress and constant bloody battle. And as the orders had never backfired, no matter how weird, they were always swallowed, no matter what the circumstances. This almost human quirk of the warmind seeming to make the troops trust the AI more than if the orders were always perfect. Everyone who faced combat knew that some orders just didn't turn out to have some magical benefit. Sometimes, he just do something embarrassing for no reason other than to be laughed at by other units afterwards. Every barracks was full of stories. One story was of troopers told to spray themselves and their equipment with sunscreen for nighttime patrols for three months. Or the unit that thought it hit the jackpot when it was told it would be eating kebabs made with actual food supplies, not rations, just for their forward base and no one else. Then they found out just how spicy they were. Most of the troops cried for the next four meals, until the taste buds were so scorched that they could probably eat napalm and not notice the difference. Then they were ordered to just leave their own crap no further than 30 feet away from their base. It smelled as bad as it hurt. Just left it there, not buried, just out in the open for two weeks. They still got attacked four times. Warmind Combat Performance Analysis Logs Warmind Decision Analysis Number 08 Ampersand 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 Yen at Ampersand Ampersand Curly Brackets Squiggly Line AGHUN Order Units Unit List Redacted Wear and Cover Their Equipment with UV Blocking Sunscreen Analysis of Enemy Battle Performance had suggested some connection to UV Light and Weapons Fire Accuracy at Night as their extra sensitivity to UV light was not a great deal better than humans, and not something that the enemy would depend on, it was not something that could be exploited in an offensive way at the time. But it did lead to a 4% reduction in accuracy of enemy fire, and a 3.5% reduction in casualties. Sunscreen had been oversupplied to the warmer regions of the planet as a failsafe against broken supply lines. But better than expected success in securing the area allowed the excess to be redeployed across all arenas on the planet. This would last the three months needed until the minor change could be made to new combat wear and be deployed. In the end, this led to a 4.5% reduction in casualties over the remaining eight months of the campaign. 
I know we need to keep these logs just in case the meat people think that we're taking the piss, but surely they trust us enough to not have to log every single decision? And log. Warmind Decision Analysis Number ANH 796 Quote Amphitheon Star Hash GH 97 And Star Euro Star Star J878 Quotation Underscore 66CJJ Make Unit Redacted Consume Custom Designed Food Plan for a period of two weeks. Make Unit Redacted Leave Fecal Waste Within 30 Feet of the Road Base. The enemy had deployed a bioweapon. Very subtle and almost natural in appearance. This made it weaker than most bioweapons. An unavoidable side effect of the need to avoid detection and recrimination. It was impossible to filter using any available equipment, but it was neutralized by the ingredients that were available to the officer's food stalls. Once it had been digested and expelled, its effects on humans were neutralized, but what remained was now a mild airborne toxin for enemy forces. Over the two-week period it took for the new rations to be created with the necessary counter-agents, this war mind has made the following analysis and orders effectiveness. Estimated one friendly casualty avoided from poisoning, four more cases of reduced combat functionality avoided. Estimated one enemy casualty and 16 cases of reduced enemy combat functionality. Okay, now I completely stand by this decision based on what resources were available at the time. But even I understand why I need to make this particular log. End log. Database entry note, at least 1,378 attempts to illegally obtain this file have been detected since the incident three weeks ago. End of story. Story number two. Heavy combat, written by Rosie013. Jason checked his weapon loadout and followed the other troopers out of the transport into Howl. He was expecting the upcoming combat to be fierce. The briefing had been short and to the point. There wasn't anything to say that he didn't already know. The foe were cornered and desperate. It had only been hours, but humanity was already so close to victory. A record time for the history books, he thought to himself with satisfaction. If he could win this last battle, of course. The foe were not a single foe, but a coalition of species working together. They shared common technology and even culture of sorts. And each species contributed one or more specialties to the combined fighting strength. But they did have one thing in common. They were all very alien. The sheer amount of firepower the last bastion put out was immense, dazzling human observers with lasers and other exotic visual displays of might. Jason's team, being humanity's elite, had pride of place leading the charge into the breach. The captain gave the signal, and in a shower of debris, a door opened up where previously there had only been a wall. The first trooper was in before the dust had settled, and paid for it with his life. Another yelled a warning and threw a grenade. Jason's turn came and he followed the sound of the explosive detonation in and slid to cover in the nearest hallway junction, right where he knew it would be. The facility originally had been humanities, and the general layout of the structure was available in the bottom right of his tactical awareness display. By the end of the tour, it would be humanities again. The confines of the building had made fighting chaotic, and the team had unfortunately become split up 
and separated during one of the many counterattacks. Alone, Jason took a moment to take stock of his situation before pushing on his final objective. The good news was he still had his health, having evaded the worst foe that could throw at him, his armor stopping some straight, unavoidable shots. His medkit had still yet to be used. The bad news was his ammo was nearly depleted for his battle rifle, the last of his explosives used a few rooms ago. Reloading, he had a clump and a half left, then he was down to his sidearm. No have to do. Jason didn't even consider picking up one of the alien guns from amongst the corpse's strewn hallway. That was an amateur mistake that he would not fall into. Sweat beaded down his brow, but he could stand the pressure of the challenge. The enemy commander awaited. Focus. Jason had emptied his rifle as soon as the alien foe stopped monologuing, but all he had achieved was killing its bodyguards. Duck back into cover, switch to sidearm, target known enemy weak points. Focus. Incoming fire. Move! Fresh cover, a blind medkit, stims. Focus. The job was almost done. Then out of nowhere, a foe landed a devastating volley of shots, throwing his corpse across the room with enough force to make it ragdoll in the most undignified manner possible. There was a collective gasp from the crowd. Jason dropped the controller and clasped the sweaty forehead in his hands, devastated. There would be no speedrun record for him today. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 832. Story number one. Last call written by Echoing Cascade. Morillet was in high spirits. He was from the Rakesh species, a small, rodent-like, and mostly harmless. A month ago, he was given an unenviable task to teach the boss's good-for-nothing son the family business. He worked at Strack and Strack an import-export company that dealt with mostly planetary specialties. He had tried to teach him the basics of galactic cargo lanes, shipping tariffs, negotiating exclusivity, and generally getting the best deal out of any business venture. He had lost him at offer and demand. Nevertheless, his boss had given the unworthy son the run of a branch in which Morillet worked. He understood very little of what he was supposed to do, he just had enough brains to have Morillet do the job for him. He did not take it lying down, however. He did the job, and he did it well. He simply used language and codes that were still widely recognized, but that no newcomer would actually run into. His boss had fired his son, Brigitte, after checking the papers and was told him this. The fact that you had another do the job is not the issue. That you didn't notice that he was messing with you, or you did, but you were too lazy to do anything about it, is. Last Marlet had heard, the big log his next job was going to be unloading cargo ships under the watchful eyes of a man who believed grievous violence and heavy object was the first warning. He was drinking to his victory alongside a few friends he had at work. They'd been going for many hours, and he was in the process of getting another drink from the bar when he ran headfirst into a wall. Well, what he thought was a wall. Unknown. Sorry, little guy. Um, are you okay? Morrill was too drunk to think straight, and he said his piece before looking at what he bumped into. Watch where you're going, human? 
He looked into the eyes of the creature nearly twice his size. It, or rather she, from what he remembered of the brochure, was looking at him with concern. She extended her arms towards him. His first reflex was to try and run, beg for his life, or both if he could swing it. Then he remembered reading that human vision was based on movement and he froze. This didn't work. She put her hands on his arms and lifted him off the floor, carried him up to his table and gave him a gentle pat on the head and left him all saying, There you go, little buddy. Be careful next time, okay? She then turned her back to the bar where she joined a couple of Rakesh women sitting at the table. It was a tense couple moments before he resumed moving, at which point he noticed none of his colleagues had moved either. In fact, a couple was still holding their breath. Obviously, they'd all read the same brochure. In it were things to look out for when dealing with humans. A recently discovered death world from a heavy gravity planet to boot. Because the universe obviously thought they needed an extra edge. The encounter had been sobering to say the least. And he and his friends were on their way out after paying the tab when Rikidja, his boss's son from the former boss, entered the bar. Rikidja was a large Romanuk. He, like all members of his species, looked what can be best described as a bipedal lizard covered in feathers. He looked furious. Not that he ever looked happy, mind you. Rikicha, leaving so soon, tired of celebrating, screwing me over. Marilet's night wasn't going well. First, he narrowly escaped death at the hands of a human. Now, he was looking at an angry Manuk with a vendetta. He tried to negotiate. His first mistake. Listen, it wasn't personal, I just, uh... Before he could finish, Rakicha landed a vicious kick to his stomach and sent him flying into his friends, tipping over a table and the glasses on them. The noise alarmed everyone present, while those who hadn't seen the Manuk enter the bar, clearly looking for trouble, that is. Rakicha drew a knife from the recesses of his dorsal feathers. You see this? This is a human knife. I got it off the corpse after I killed it in single combat. Marlet was shaking and trying to at least save his friends from Rikicha's fury. Listen, Rikicha, they had nothing to do with us. Just, uh, just leave them be, please. His second mistake. Rikicha smiled, a row of fangs clearly visible. I guess I know where to start to cut now. Marlet was slowly moving in front of his friends. Then from the back of the bar a single sentence was heard. It wasn't screamed, it was barely a whisper, but it sounded like thunder to all present. Human female, hold my beer. The human handed a drink to one of the female Rakesh and walked slowly towards the group. She didn't look angry, per se. The best way to describe her demeanor was uh, purposeful. Rikicha wasn't impressed and turned to look at the advancing figure. Get lost, female, this is none of your concern. The human smiled. She didn't show her teeth yet. She looked far more predatory than Manuk had. You claim to have killed the human and stolen his blade. A funny joke, but still annoying. After saying, her smile faded. And you're disturbing my friend's leisure time, and that irks me. Mrikicha made her first and last mistake. Wait your turn, little ape. 
Once I'm finished with my friends here, I'll carve you and your little rats one by He never finished the sentence. The human stepped forward faster than anyone could actually follow. Punched him in the stomach, grabbed the knife, holding wrist, twisting it in the direction whilst twisting the forearm in another with an audible snap. Rikicha fell to his knees, vomiting and holding his wrist, all what was left of it. Before he could scream his pain, the blade he had been holding was now at his throat. He looked up at the human, a silent plea for mercy in his eyes. She wasn't in the mood. You really shouldn't have said that. Marilet had thought Rikuja's anger a terrifying sight. The human made the fire in the Manuk's eyes look like a candle in the endless void. She didn't just slit his throat, she nearly decapitated him only falling short because the blade shattered against Rikicha's spine. Merrillet was sitting at a desk inside the station security room. He'd been talking to the lead detectives about the death of Rikicha. That's what happened. After that, security arrived and the human calmly allowed herself to be restrained and taken into custody. The detective noted his testimony, a formality, since they had the bar's security records. Very well, Mr. Marillet, you may go. Before exiting the room, Marillet couldn't help but be curious about the creature who had saved his life. What's gonna happen to the human? Is she in trouble? The detective was pensive for a moment. He wasn't supposed to share information just yet, but it was going to be public soon anyway. The uh, victim. The detective actually made the air quotes with his fingers when he said victim which actually got a smile out of Marilet. The detective coughed. Anyway, the victim threatened the human and her pack-bonded co-workers with a ceramic knife he claimed he stole from the human he had killed. After the human had uttered the words, Hold my beer. Marilet nodded. He thinks he got the idea. So, uh, you're gonna treat it as self-defense? The detective shook his head. Suicide. End of story. Story number two. The Swimming Contest, written by Rosie013. Tim limbered up slowly and carefully. It was harder to do than normal. Not because of the exuberant atmosphere of the cheering crowds the likes of a backwater guy like him had never seen. It wasn't to do with the constant concern and observant looks of many officials kept giving him directly and through telecameras. He wasn't even concerned that the betting odds had tipped him for the last place by a good margin. No, Tim was about to represent the only non-aquatic species to ever partake in this swimming contest. He was doomed to fail. But the contest was also an important benchmark for humanity. Being rather new to the galactic scene, we badly needed to get some recognition and acceptance among the other species. No other non-aquatic species ever even applied for this race. His entrance had caused quite a stir with the officiating body of the competition. Tim's coach had gone on for hours and hours about some dribble that it wasn't winning that mattered, but the camaraderie of the sporting event and the solidarity with the less common water sentient species. At least, he was allowed to come up for air whenever he needed. One of the other participating species were only technically partially aquatic, 
and still needed to surface every few laps or so of the Olympian-sized swimming pool in front of him. Ignoring the official concern, looks, Tim stepped up to the block. The race itself passed quickly in a moment, as all things do. Raising his head at the finish line to catch his breath, Tim couldn't help notice the other contestants staring at him. Did he actually break swimming lanes? Nope, he didn't think so. Had Tim held them up, 3,000 meters was plenty of time to fall behind. As the roar of the crowd finally caught up with him, Tim realized that he wasn't in the last position on the scoreboard, or even the last to finish. It was only some time after the race that humanity learned that most of the sapient aquatic species were descended from shallow wetlands. No one had ever even considered the ordeal of open ocean swimming as a recreation. It was an endurance race, not a speed competition. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 833. Story number one. Neutron stars are forever. Written by Lane Meller. Alonco had been preparing for this moment for longer than he cared to think about. A deep cover agent for the industrial Sahal. He had trained for years to get where he was. Painful surgeries and physical therapy, makeup and piles of research combed through every tiny detail. He knew to stifle the instinctive urge to arch his lower limbs at the need of a tour. It was so inefficient to limit himself only to his upper digits. Although having five fingers instead of two was extremely nice, he had to admit. Learning to use the things properly had been nightmare-inducing. He still had horror dreams about trying to learn to use the chopsticks in particular. Fortunately, many humans could not master the skill either, so he had not flunked out when he had failed that part of the exam. Wasn't that surprising, actually. Anatomy changes like this were an expensive procedure, and he had already been partially trained on how to use five fingers with a brain that was wired for two by the time that they had reached that point. At least humans seemed to have a large range of behaviors and cultures, so Alanka need only focus on perfecting one. He was one of the few fake human moles who chose to go with something other than American, though. It was probably the easiest to emulate, being very open to strangeness because of mixing a part of cultures, as well as a penchant for being allowed and generally oblivious to the societal norms of other countries. He still picked an English-speaking country so that he could practice and strange syllables with his peers, and he watched archives worth of classic movies to perfect his Bristol accent. That combined with the meek demeanor and the penchant for being wallflower for a while and he'd be able to go where he liked. For the glory of Sahal, he would do as generations of spies had done before him when a new species hit the galactic stage. He would collect data and protect the collective. This wasn't even the most extreme change that he had seen in the textbooks. Although forward-facing eyes had been odd, Blinking at the correct rate had also taken copious amounts of practice, as well as suppressing his inner eyelid. At this point, he might as well buy stock in the company that made seeding solution. He went through it at an alarming speed. 
He had a small capsule for context to explain the seeding to the humans as well. Although, the thought of actually inserting little bits of glass into his eyes made him shiver. Even after all the mods he'd been through, such a primitive method was absolutely petrifying to contemplate. Humans were so unsanitary and needlessly archaic. He tugged at the too tight collar at the strange rags that the humans were fond of. He wasn't certain exactly what the function that tie posed, just that it was a custom, but tight. Well, this was day one of his assignment. He supposed eventually it would be just more of an uncomfortable thing on top of another million. He no longer felt like a Sahol, but neither did he feel quite human, stuck in a strange limbo he didn't quite know how to feel about. He did, however, feel prepared. He knew he was ready. All of his training had led him to these few glorious moments. Yet, anxiety still surged as well as he could carefully started mentally reciting the correct instructions for making tea for the millionth time. Half practice, half distraction. Boil the water. One tea bag per person and then one for the pot. Warm the pot and the cups with the hot water rinse. Add near boiling water and don't forget your tea cozy. Steep for five minutes. Pour, then add the mer. Crush. Whoosh. He slammed into a human hat. Papers he was grasping flew everywhere. He slid a bit across the floor and winced. He was going to feel that later. The human rocked back on its heels, then steadied itself. Alagor immediately stood to his feet with a brush at it off, offering his usual mild manner. Apology. Internally, he was cursing himself. Everything straining his muscles as he kept it from his face. He was awkwardly scooping up the white papers that the humans used. So wasteful. Both species had gone fully digital over a century ago. But this was a military installation. And strictly speaking, he wasn't really supposed to be here even as a human self. If he was caught, he'd be in deep crap from both of his new human boss and his old Sahal one as well. What did the human spies say? Vrek. Yes. Vrek was a good term for how Alan Corp was feeling right now. The copious amounts of paper had worked as a distraction and partially as a shield, but his lack of attention had turned it into the greatest nightmare. This was a soldier, a human, staring at him, probably with suspicion. Although he could not see this thing's face. He was startled when a moment later he heard a gruff, no problem, and then, help? The human was helping scoop up wayward bits of printed treeple. Soon the large human, dressed in military fatigues that Alancor knew clothed those who brought death. Being friendly, he had been under the impression that all military traps were gruff and unforgivable. Day one, and already he felt like he knew nothing once again about these strange bipedal creatures. Then the creature overextended its jaw with a small pop right in front of Alancor's face. And just as suddenly, the soldier was yelling, snatching him by his upper limbs and crushing grip. Double frick. What had given him away? Wait, the dude I caught was an alien. I just thought he was a sociopath which would have automatically failed him for any sort of job test here. I remember the screening for that crap. It was intense. 
Lieutenant Rod said as his arms waved about frantically, his eyes wide behind his thin glasses. That's usually what it means when someone doesn't yawn back. The whole little green men thing is new, plus, um, he looked human. Didn't he look human? The tall, bespeckled man paced back and forth uneasily at the very thought. End of story. Story number two. Vulcan, written by D. Raiden. The lift hummed softly as it rose towards the bridge of the ship, and there was little that I could do but wait. He really would think that an interstellar civilization a thousand years more advanced than us would have something more advanced than lifts. But as it turned out, no. The galaxy ran on a, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Which meant that while their tech was fancy, it was only a thousand years for advance, barring FTL drives than ours. When our first FTL-capable ship had first contact a couple of the systems over from Sol, we didn't expect humanity to be anything special. We both were, and we weren't. The lift stopped and I walked into the bridge, the space lighting up from the LED strips of my suit. There was one annoying thing about alien ships. They were pitch dark. As it turned out, that was something unique about humans. We had eyes. Apparently, that was rare. Very rare. Apparently, Earth was the only place where life evolved eyes. We couldn't believe it at first, because what the hell? It has evolved three times independently on Earth for crying out loud. But no. The bridge was filled with clicking and rasping sounds, and the captain turned to me before he approached. I did my best not to cringe as the lightly rat-like captain's lobster-like feelers brushed across my shoulder and the sides of my face as he clicked at me, my translator in my ear translating for me, Welcome aboard, Specialist Jackson. I am Captain Kakakakakakar. Do you find your living space? I could see the color shifting across his short fur. There was something most species had. No eyes, no optical defenses. You could literally see at least hints of the feelings. Captain K was nervous. I did, thank you, Captain. I answered and smiled at him. Not that he could tell easily as I reached up and touched his left feeder with the back of one hand. I am ready to get to work. Of course, your shift at the bridge sign station is about to start. Are you certain you're capable of working a double shift without rest? Yes, sir, I answered. It was only eight hours, after all. And other things humans had over most aliens. We were persistence hunters. We were built to follow antelope across the scorching savannah for three days straight. While omnivores or even predators weren't rare, Aggressive species did have a better chance to get to the top of the food chain and civilization after all. We were the first ones with that specific hunting trick. Heading over to the science station, I touched the antenna of the giant bug sitting there and took her place so that she could get some rest. Reconfiguring the chair to something a bit closer to an ergonomic for humans, I sat down and slid a pair of glasses down before my eyes as I plugged into the console. While I could use their tactile and audio-based interface, even getting text-based interface was rather nice. So in short, 
Humans could keep working a lot longer than most aliens, had a sense that they simply didn't, and on top of it all, we could read them easily enough to basically be empathic. We thought the galaxy would be full of amazing aliens, strange phenomenons, and alien technology. It turned out that we were completely right. Other than teleporters, we weren't that far from that old Star Trek series. But what we really, really didn't expect was for us to be the Vulcans of the universe. Science officer reporting in, Captain, I said, as I logged onto the system. All senses read clear. We are safe for warp. Captain K sat down in his chair, his feelers moving through the air, testing the currents. Acknowledged, science officer. Helm, engage. And so we were off to explore the universe and all its wonders. It was just too bad that nobody but humans could see it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 834. Story number one. Dibs, written by Ice Cream and Wine. Stanley stood on the battlefield. How the hell do I get away with that then? He thought to himself. The ground is carpeted with the broken bodies of soldiers on both sides. Something's off, he thought. I can't smell blood or smoke, or anything else come to that. Some yards to the left he saw the remains of Tiana, his best friend in the regiment. He knew it was her, even though her head and right shoulder was missing. Damn, that's a blow, he thought, and attempted to approach her body. He was brought up short and could make no further progress. What the frick? He said to himself, turning around, he noticed an extremely thin silver cord that seemed to have grown out of his back. The other end was attached to his body. What gives? He said to himself and rubbed his arms across his face, or would have done so if it hadn't noticed that his arm was transparent. He raised his hand to his face as the same thing happened. He could see right through it. He went back to the body and saw immediately that it was him, or what was left of him, and what was left of him wouldn't fit into a pint glass by the look of it. Bummer, he said. All across the battlefield, wispy black shapes had appeared and seemed to be searching amongst the bodies. Every now and again, one would point to a body and see through a version of that person would emerge and stand up. There were many black wisps. All different, and all, without exception, totally alien. Not surprising. We have, uh, had many races in our ranks, Stanley said to himself. He watched as many of his former comrades and friends were summoned and taken away. But not all, as some of the bodies were avoided. What are you? demanded a wispy shade that looked like a chimpanzee with a lizard's head. I am human. Who? What are you? Stanley said. I am Gentra, the guide for the Memket people, said the Chazard, and I am claimed your essence. Come with me. So saying, she pointed at Stanley's body. He felt a mouth tug, as if the very light breeze had sprung up and then vanished. I don't think so, said Stanley, noting that some of the other bodies had silver cords connecting them to the great forms. What? You defy me? Chantra, the eternal. Chantra, the implacable. Chantra. Looks like it, interrupted Stanley. I'm human, not a memket. It matters not. You have been summoned, said Chantra, pointing a finger again. 
Again, the light breeze washed over Stanley. Nah, babe, not happening. The waving of the finger ain't working, he said. How is this possible? shouted Chandra. Dunno, don't care. Haven't you got others to guide? Sling your hook and leave me alone. Stanley felt a tingle all over and realized he couldn't see through his arm anymore. If I cannot take your essence, I will take you in physical form, shouted Chandra, grabbing Stanley's now corporeal arm and received an armored boot to the Happy Valley for her trouble, which catapulted her fifteen yards away. Don't touch what you can't afford, shouted Stanley, who was quite enjoying himself, even given the circumstances. He felt a small tingle all over, and once again his body was transparent. Chentra was still on the ground moaning and clutching herself, when a third voice said, What is going on here? Spinning around, he shouted, What is it to you? Oh, crap. Oh, crap indeed, said the seven-foot-tall cloaked figure holding a long bullhook. She was trying to take my essence. I assume that's my soul, he asked the cloaked figure. Your soul is mine, and mine alone to reap, stated the bullhook holder. Yeah, once I saw all the other versions of dead, I figured it would have been you to cut the cord. You seem remarkably calm for somebody in your position, said the holder of the bullhook. Well, I know a lot more about it now than I did before I died, said Stanley. Chantra staggered to her feet, took one look at the two of them in conversation, and fled to the far end of the battlefield. You'd be surprised at how many times this happens, said the cloaked figure. It was never worked for any of them, and yet they keep trying. You have to admire the hustle, I suppose, said Stanley. What happens now? The bullhook sliced through the silver cord. This happens. All right. I'd almost forgot, by the way. Why the bullhook, said Stanley. It's easier to reach. The portal with shimmering dark appeared in front of Stanley. We all have our exits, said the figure. Stanley shrugged and crossed the threshold, and then there was nothing. End of story. Story number two. Earth's Greatest Export. Written by Digital 332006. Contrary to what most people would believe, first contact with an alien species wasn't all that we'd thought it would be. There was no fighting. No awe and wonder from the aliens or ourselves regarding each other. No, it was mostly paperwork. A whole bunch of it. The galaxy at large functioned on an ever-expanding bureaucracy, which employed millions of workers, all trying to juggle the complexities of laws, treaties, and various aspects of diplomacy. As such, when humanity was discovered, Thousands of galactic employees were sent to begin the arduous task of making sure humans complied, understood, and executed the millions of regulations that existed. Rarely, but it did happen, a species would be found that was completely incompatible with the way the rest of the universe worked. Fanatic purifiers, hive minds, determined exterminators, to name a few. In those cases, the solution usually involved confining them to their home planet or more extreme measures, should that not be possible. Indeed, nothing may halt the ever-spinning gear that is the galactic bureaucracy. Humans adapted well enough to the galactic bureaucracy, only a few countries stubbornly fighting some of the laws. 
After everything settled down and humans tried entering the galactic market, they found it impossible to make a profit. It was a losing gambit to try and compete with civilizations that had the full power of the sun at their disposal, driving energy costs very low. Only very specific types of businesses saw any profits, those that dealt with specialized goods and service sector. Humans were nothing remarkable. Resilient, yes, but that was not something marketable. Strength was another factor. Humans were among the top ten physically strongest species, but robotics made that obsolete. Due to multiple millennia of religiously following the rules, the Xenos of the universe lacked what many humans would call a spine, both simply accepting their fate and resigning themselves to whatever happened to them. Humans, on the other hand, often made their discontent apparent, complaining about all perceived injustices, real or not. What made them excel in the service sector was what contemporaries called uh, Clarence. Many Earth-based companies began hiring regular average humans and training them to fill in such roles, turning galactic human economy to one of service. Available in three distinct levels, Xenos have the option of having a Karen, a lawyer, or an angry drill sergeant. The different models of personal assistant human, now referred to as a PAH, all come with a satisfaction guarantee warranty. The Karen model helps in getting better customer service, special rebates, and speaking directly with the manager. The second model is aimed at those that dealt with more dangerous individuals. The angry drill sergeant strikes fear in over 99% of the known Xenos simply with its verbal abuse. Trained in multiple fighting styles, the ADSPHA is not simply all bark, it has bite. Last but not least, to help those more white-collar type career, the lawyer human can help find even the most elusive legal loopholes, protecting their employer's assets and personal freedom. Here are some of the reviews of satisfied customers. I used to have a hard time standing in myself because I didn't want to cause any trouble. Just last week, I went to the Lavendra for the summer sale, but I was informed that the sale had ended the day before. My Karen, PHH, Isabel, really laid into the salesperson. I felt a little bad at first, but I was able to get my items at 60% off. Like, it was the sale day. She already paid for herself in a single week. 10 out of 10 would rent again. Warranty from the government prime. I don't usually leave reviews, but my lawyer, PAH, has saved my family business. We were about to lose our land to a company that was going to build a highway on it, but the little human managed to find a 23,000-year-old exemption because of this farm was once taken over by the Gralic in the Tenurian War, but they never gave it back to the peace treaty. I guess it means we're part of another empire, but we get to keep the family farm. 9 out of 10. I had to buy something called coffee in large batches, and it smelled pretty bad. Gentix from Etherelia. What are you waiting for? Get your PAH today and live life to the maximum. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 835. The World Ship, written by Destroyer Matron MK8. The World Ship created in five light cycles from the system's sun. 
the Naraj had learned the hard way never to jump directly to the unscanned system. The commander immediately checked for enemy ships, but there were none. Additional scans revealed no defensive emplacements, no traps, and no spatial anomalies. There was an unusually high amount of electromagnetic radiation emanating from the third planet, but not enough to be a danger. The commander relaxed what was left of its body. Experience had taught it that the first few docents after entering a new system were the most dangerous. If another advanced species was present, they would activate defenses and attack immediately. Traps or dangerous anomalies could be triggered or felt immediately as well. Death would take the world ship and a billion souls under its charge at the commander's first mistake. Death might take them if he made no mistakes at all. The stars are unforgiving. More confident now, the commander ordered the ship closer to the system. Space folded and the world ship cruised through the gateway. Namir caught a light cycle away now. A more thorough scan assessed the system. The commander liked what he saw. The system was a treasure trove of raw materials. Even better, it held two planets capable of supporting a colony. The third planet was the best. Its gravity, atmosphere, and abundance of water were perfect for supporting carbon-based life, such as the Narage. The fourth planet was cold, with a low gravity, dangerous weather conditions, and a poisonous atmosphere. It would take ten cycles and significant resources to make it habitable. Space was vast, and a system with even one habitable planet was a rare find. Two habitable planets surrounded by so many resources was a find most commanders only dreamed of. The third planet was inhabited, of course. Life will spring up in any planet capable of supporting it. The ship detected several sapient species. The most populous of the sapiens were the source of the electromagnetic radiation. They were using it to communicate with each other over distances. The world mind, the ship's intelligence, decoded the radiation and analyzed their technology. They had nothing that would be of use to the Narage. Threat assessment, the commander asked. There was no need to speak to convey the question. The commander had been grafted to the world ship's command center. Connections to the world mind had been woven and spliced with his nervous system. Knowledge blooded into the commander. Most of their weapons were projectiles fired by chemical reaction. The most powerful projectiles could be detonated with a fission reaction, creating a large explosion and electromagnetic shockwave. They posed no threat to the world ship. It was unlikely that they could even attack it from any distance past their own moon. Their spaceflight technology was in early development, and they had not prepared any planetary defenses. The sapiens seemed aware of the possibility of life outside of their system, but had not confirmed its existence. Defenseless, the commander's body tensed again, this time with excitement. Excellent. A third gate jump brought the world ship within twenty light suns of the furthest planet. The world mind readied the weapons and selected targets. The ship would fire the anti-life beam at each planet and a large body within eight light docents. The beams would expand just enough to encompass the targets. The energy would pass through most matter, but any carbon-based life form would dissolve at its touch. 
The sapiens would die before they would even know that they were being attacked. The wolf ship would move and repeat the process as needed until not a single bacteria remained within a light cycle of the system star. Then colonization would begin. Before the commander could give the order, the ship registered a mass of spatial distortions. A fleet of ships appeared. A quick scan confirmed the identity. The Reen, an aquatic species, carbon-based like the Narage. The lead ship sent a message to the commander's language. This system is ours. Leave it and do not return. The commander considered. The swift arrival of the fleet implied that the system was being monitored. Why? Were they protecting one of the sapient species? Some unknown resource? Was there a cultural or religious reasons to leave the system untouched? The third planet's ocean suited the Reen's biology perfectly. The commander had no idea why they hadn't colonized it themselves. The fleet consisted of 600,000 ships of varying designs. The standard defense force for a Reen system. The world ship dwarfed them in both size and firepower. The Reen would need a force ten times larger than this one to threaten it. A world ship had taken one of their colonies two cycles ago. The Reen had sent fleet after fleet only to be destroyed. The Reen were young and primitive. They'd been traveling the stars for a mere 200 cycles and had spread to only 23 systems in that time. Space folded, and a second fleet appeared. 333 hive ships, diamond-shaped, each the size of a small moon. The Vresk. Troubling. The Vresk were an elder race, far more advanced than the Reen. They were silicon-based life forms with different resource requirements than the Narage. The two species had mostly avoided each other until now. The Vresk did not send communication. They powered up their weapons, opened their drone ports, and waited. Why were they here? Did the Vresk have an alliance with the Reen? Unlikely, the commander decided. Interspecies alliances are very rare, and the Vresk had offered no communication to the other fleet. Some of the Reens had even locked weapons on them for a moment before retargeting the world ship. More likely, they were protecting whatever resource the Reen had come to save. This would require consultation. Destroying the Reen was one thing. The Narage were planning to take their system in the next few cycles, anyway. The Vresk were another matter. They were nearly as advanced as the Narage, and more numerous. A war of extinction with them would be costly and dangerous. The decision to start such a conflict should not be made by a lone commander. The commander reached out through the world mine. Other commanders on other world ships accepted the link. The combined minds and lore of the Narage poured through the data. Consensus was reached in under a dozen. The world ship fired. Anti-life energy scythed through the enemy fleet. The effect was less than desired. The Reen had learned from the previous encounter. All but two ships withstood the attack. They returned fired. The Vresk were unaffected. The commander did not know if they had countermeasures or if silicon-based lifeforms were just immune to the effect. They returned fire as well. The commander was not concerned. 
the world ship had all manner of weaponry, plasma and various energy beams launched out. Projectiles larger than some of the Reen ships launched at a quarter of the speed of light. There were too many ships and weapons for the commander to process, but the world mind directed the battle with ease. The Reen concentrated their fire, trying to overwhelm the ship's defenses in a small area and inflict as much damage as they could before being wiped out. Their efforts did not impress the commander. The Vresk ships were more effective. Their beams were comprised of several different energy types at once, with a far more power behind them than the Reen could muster. Drone swarms poured from the Hive ships, millions of small craft flinging themselves at the Narage. They were heavily shielded. Some few thousand of them reached the hull of the world ship before it could shoot them down. The drone ships tore into the hull, burrowing. The world mine sent automated attack droids to deal with them. Before the droids could destroy them, the drones detonated. Nuclear fusion reactions. The commander shuddered as its nervous system felt the ship take damage. The world ship focused more of its fire on the drone swarms and would not allow more of them to get through. More spatial distortions appeared. Ten more Reen defensive fleets entered the system. The detonation of the drone ships had created a gap in the ship's defenses. The Reen struck the gap with every weapon that they could fire. The commander clenched at the new pain. He had snapped orders, but the world mind was already moving. The ship rotated, moving the damaged section out of the line of fire. Using the damaged area as an axis, it spun, picking up speed. The motion lessened the enemy's ability to concentrate fire on any one point. It did not lessen the ship's ability to fire at the enemy. The commander assessed the damage. A swath of devastation had been carved into the ship. An area twice the size of the hive ship had been destroyed completely. The world ship could only lose 40% of its structure before it started to lose effectiveness. 12% had already been lost. The commander assessed the enemy. Most of the original Reen fleet had been eliminated. Nineteen Vresk hive ships had been destroyed. The world ship was an even match for either of the hive ship's fleets or the ten Reen defensive force. Both together would destroy it. The commander reached out through the world mind. The Narage answered. A gate opened and a second world ship entered the fray. Then a third. Then two more. Instead of retreating, the Reen split their forces, attacking each world ship with two of their fleets. The Narage ignored the newcomers, intent on destroying the commander's ship, and moved on to the next opponent. Fools! Their combined forces could defeat one world ship, perhaps two. Five was certain death. The Narage would not be stopped. Reen and Vresk alike fell to the combined might of the world ships. After barely half a dozen, the Vresk turned, running towards the edge of the system as fast as their engines would tank them. The thrill of victory surged through the commander. Confusion replaced it. Space folding could remove them from the danger in an instant. Why were they using sublight propulsion? The Reen broke off their attack. They sped away from the world ships. The commander ordered the ships to cease fire. The others followed suit. 
Something was wrong. The commander ordered a deep scan of the system. Fear clenched him when he saw it. A massive ship, black, swimming through the void like a living thing. A world eater. If the species had a name, the Naraj did not know it. The Naraj had encountered them twice. The Naraj had seen their worlds consumed. The commander ordered a retreat. The world mind initiated a gate jump. Nothing happened. Panic! The ship fired all weapons, moving away at full speed. The other Naraj ran, firing as well. The world eater seemed to not notice. Further scan showed the energy and projectiles were being absorbed into its hull. The world eater opened its maw. It took the world ships one after the other. The commander's ship was locked. It wailed in despair. Five billion souls lost in a dozen. The stars are unforgiving. The commander writhed as the ship dissolved. The pain was so great it triggered a failsafe, severing the world ship from its nervous system. The weapons were eaten quickly, but the scanning and communications were held deeper in the ship. The commander watched as the world eater turned towards the reen. The Reen turned to face the World Eater, weapons locked. The Vresk targeted it as well. The Commander took some small comfort in knowing that the enemies would die with it. The World Eater did not attack. Instead, it began to emit radiation. Electromagnetic, similar to that used by the Sapiens on the Third Planet. The World Mind decoded it. A sound, high-pitched, resonant, then more sounds. There was something strange about them. They felt somber, hopeful. Music. The world mind informed it. A composition from a human named Brendan Small. It's called the Galaxy. The Reen lowered their weapons lock. They transmitted their own electromagnetic signals. The signal showed the Reen in their ships, undulating in the water, dancing. The commander had heard of such things, but had never seen them before. It was an odd thing, but not unpleasant. Low, glattural, grunting noises joined the sounds. Singing. The world mind translated the words. We are the dark and the light. We have the power of time. The Vresk transmitted. The worker drones were shifting in circles, the buzzing of their wings matching the pitch of some of the sounds. The warrior drones flew in intricate patterns. The queen bopped its head, banging one of its stabbing appendages on the console in a timed sequence. We are the serpents intertwined. The galaxy will unite. Is this what they were protecting? The signals broadcast by a primitive species. The Vresk and the Reen had sacrificed millions of lives. They celebrated as if the world they saved was their own. A world eater had come, but it was no longer consuming. The commander did not understand. The commander routed a signal through the world mind, along with every scrap of data it could collect on the primitives. It could not fathom the value, but perhaps its people could. Perhaps the loss of five billion Naraj would not be vain. The information sent, the commander slumped in its harness. There was nothing left to do, and little time left in any case. It listened to the song, 
It watched the dancers and awaited its fate. The stars are unforgiving. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 836. Willpower. Written by Digital 332006. Ambassador to the Telerock, Alexander Sankranstix prepared himself for the likely last diplomatic mission ever. He straightened his tie, making sure he looked presentable in the mirror. He had spent the night reviewing messages and sending virtual mail from his room in the capital city of Chomska. Rumor was a bit of a luxurious word for it. It felt more like a prison to him. The Telerock were not overly friendly, and Alexander had been informed as soon as morning came that his escort awaited him downstairs. He was directed into the large vehicle surrounded by armed men. His thoughts wandered off to the species that humanity was at war with. And it all started with a lack of understanding. Or so he thought. Humanity was still fresh on the intergalactic stage and was trying to leave its mark. They took offense to some of the less than honorable morals of the Telerot people, who routinely enslaved races that they viewed as lessers and committed various atrocities in the process. One aspect of the Telerok that helped in their claims of superiority was the fact is that they, as a species, had psychic powers. Having not heard of an old adage, with great power comes great responsibility, they simply used theirs to do as they willed, often at the detriment of others. We thought that we'd be unique in the aspect that we always bickered and fought, but it seemed to extend to a galaxy at large as well. The idea of a unified alien council often made its way in our media, but it was just wishful thinking. The universe as a whole was cruel, not simply planet Earth. The Telerock took offense to the boycotts and sanctions that humanity wished to impose on them, using their might as would a bully and attacking human colonies in retribution. The battles proved to be a hard fought and even harder winner. Casualties mounted on both sides, although the human ones were higher. They lost no ground. Thankfully, they were mainly fought on the colonies far away from Seoul, but the governments were now worried that it would soon reach home. As such, Alexander was sent to try and end hostilities. The vehicle stopped, letting Alexander disembark before it left again, leaving him stranded in front of their seat of power. Alexander took a long, deep breath, conjuring up mental fortitude to continue on. As he climbed the steps to reach the top, two guards stopped him. Halt! We must inspect you! The robot's translator voice spoke out. Alexander extended his hands and arms as they ran some kind of scanner over them. As the guard probed the scanner to front of the human's chest, it beeped. Ah! Terribly sorry. Pacemaker here. I have a health card in my wallet. The Telerock guard scoffed in disgust. Pathetic, weak creatures. How have you not perished yet? Alexander considered the moment, replying, Willpower and ingenuity, they are my people's greatest assets. With a shake of their head, the guards let Alexander enter. 
The interior was magnificently decorated, with rare metals on display, woven and designed with great care by talented artists. Such a shame, Alexander muttered to himself. Some type of security guided him along to the room where the Telerarch seemed to be waiting for him. They were dressed rather splendidly, long, flowing purple robes with intricate motifs, and Alexander could feel the power that seemed to radiate from them. Noticing him enter the room, one of the five waved to the secretary to close the door and indicated a small chair to the human. You know why you're here, human? To discuss surrender. The other four nodded, smiles on their faces. Excellent. The usual terms, then. Alexander had barely had the time to sit down as he stood up again, readying himself to leave. Thank you all. You'll receive the demands within three to four cycles. The one that seemed in charge had turned back to the human. It pivoted rapidly to face him as it heard its words. What? Alexander cleared his throat and spoke nicely and slowly. The demands for your unconditional surrender. A moment's confusion set in, but was quickly broken down with the roars of laughter. Barely able to contain their fits, insults flew from their mouths as they could hardly control themselves, calling him deranged, lunatic, and clueless. Did they send a stupid one? No, it's your unconditional surrender we're looking for. Oh, there's a misunderstanding then. Humanity has no desire nor intention to surrender. The Telerarch's face contorted with rage and twisted with malice. Power erupted from its mind as it seized Alexander and lifted him up midair. Raw venom came from its mouth. No, you misunderstand. Humanity is in no position to demand anything but our mercy, which is in very short supply. Alexander couldn't control any of his extremities. His whole body was paralyzed except his head. Now you'll torture me, he managed to croak out. Yes, all will see the weak humans broken by us, a prelude. Of what is to come, you'll be made an example for your entire species. A stark reminder of their place in the universe as we tear you limb from limb. Looking at the Telerarch, Alexander smiled. Ad Astra her aspera. Alexander used all his strength to chew on something in his mouth. Bone quickly rising to his mouth as he spasmed uncontrollably in midair, still held by the Telerarch telekinesis. Ah, it killed itself. A shame, really. Well, no, I suppose we will have to... Wait, what is that sound? A faint sound originated from the human's body, a sort of beeping that seemed to accelerate rapidly. A blinding light was the last thing the transmission sent out before abruptly cutting off. End of story. Story number two. Poisoned by Rosie 013. The Galaxi were the greatest warrior race in the entire galaxy, 
unmatched on all accounts. It's why they rule the universe. They can kill anything, defeat anyone, injure any environment, all to win every single time. Except for one tiny, small blemish on their records. They used to also claim that they could survive on anything. They don't make that claim anymore. Not since the humans first showed up. The humans entered the galactic scene in the way that most races have. Accidentally discovered by the galaxy looking for one particular resource or another the Empire needs. Naturally, the galaxy moved to annex the humans and the humans said, No, politely. More amused than outraged, they made to take what was theirs by birthright. Just another upstart surf species who didn't know their proper place. A little show of force would be all it took. Those humans hadn't even left their cradle planet yet. Galaxy soldiers deploy directly from their ships out to the airlocks and simply falling to the planet below. It wasn't a new tactic. But the humans were suitably impressed, having never seen the like. How could any species fight against creatures that were tough enough to survive re-entry, undeaccelerated landings only, to get up and start fighting without anything worse than a mild discomfort? Answer, you can't. No one can. And the humans' first few battles, if the slaughter could be called that, proved that point yet again. But the humans are stubborn things, and fought on regardless of the hopelessness of their situations. Then, uh, something completely unheard of happened. Some galaxy got sick. Just a few at first, the affected individuals could not fight on, and had to be evacuated. What had been an easy, almost leisurely pacification had just become deadly serious. The medical specialists were baffled. They knew nothing of how poisons or toxins affected their species, because there wasn't any that could affect them that they knew of. The only known clue was the vector of transmission. All of the sickened individuals had been eating whatever local biomatter was available to them when hungry, as was the way of the Galaxy soldiers' variants. So what made this planet's biosphere different? As more Kalaxi got sick and the sickness worsened, the Empire reluctantly did something in its panic it had never done before. They sued for peace. They needed the humans to help save their army before the sickness spread uncontrollably. Without it, the entire arms of the galaxy would revolt. The Kalaxi didn't have a dedicated diplomatic corps. Why would they, when they simply took what was needed? The common human was as much experience with politics and intrigue due to a millennia of complicated social structures and extreme planet-wide resource inequalities. The humans realized this early on and quickly capitalized on their new advantage. Galaxy war leaders were furious, but helpless as the humans robbed them blind at the negotiating table. Time was of the essence for the second so the humiliating demands were agreed to. Humans secured their own corner of the galaxy as a private empire built with claim rights to systems and reverse-engineered galaxy technologies. Indignant galaxy populations calmed over the decades into grudging respect for the creatures 
able to tolerate such dangerously poisonous food sources. Eventually, regular trade grew commonplace between the species, and for the first time ever, the Calaxi saw another species as something other than serfs. But the humans... They never revealed that they discovered all the early affected Galaxy soldiers had eaten human meat. Human meat from a cancer hospital that hadn't been evacuated in time. There was nothing poisonous about the human biosphere at all. Most of the provided antitoxins were placebos. It is still the greatest heist played on our overlord Galaxy masters ever made to this very day. And our revenge for the servitude is that they will never know. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 837. Story number one. The Great Trial. Written by Echoing Cascade. Yisio was an emeract, a race of bureaucrats whose greatest contribution to the universe at large was the Great Trial. It consisted of a series of questions, psychological and physical tests. They were designed to quantify a race's aptitudes in many fields of employments. The results would define a race's future. Would they be mostly soldiers, tailors, accountants, janitors? To say that it was an important event for a newly discovered race would be putting it mildly. Yesia was reading the morning news he, like many others, wanted to know the results of the recently discovered Death Worlders, humanity as they called themselves. It took them quite a bit of time to get the results this time around. This seemed odd to Yesio. These people were efficient. The numbers should have been made down weeks ago. He read the statistics. Nothing worthy of note. It ranged from slightly above average in most fields, with an obvious aptitude for combat, but not high enough to actually supplant the warrior races in combat prowess. Then, uh, something caught his eye. Something a non-emeract would never have noticed. The results demanded a third set of tests. He made his way to the office on his old friend and business partner, Cremio, his race was one of the best-suited traits, for Crimea was a shining example. When no one wanted of an emeract businessman, he gave Yesio a chance, and they both made it big. They ran several trading routes, the multiple stations along the way, and a couple small colonization projects. He always wanted to expand on the last one, and now he could. Crimea. So, uh, what's this business opportunity we can't sleep on, though you talked about? Crimea wasn't the kind to talk in circles. This made him look rough and simple, which is exactly what he wanted. He was a very cunning man, a fact many who tried to fool him learned too late. Yesio, if I asked you what would be the optimal colonization crew, what would you answer? Crimea raised an eyebrow at this. Yesio knew the answer, so he obviously wanted him to say it out loud. The reason why? escaped him. Emerax to keep the books, Stayans on architecture, Malachi's on security, Osant Nazi on living spaces, Kurs on aesthetics, and a crap ton of robots for the actual construction. Yusio nodded. What special accommodations would be required? Crimea was still lost, but decided to humor his old friend. 
Soundproof rooms for the Emirax lie prey for the Stainos to hunt, and caves where they can build their webs. Large pools of water for the Malachis. Zero gravity rooms for the Akanazi, and gem decorated rooms for the Kors. Facing the local star, Yesia. Exactly. Grimio wasn't seeing what Yesia was so excited about, and finally chose just to ask. You know all of this, what gives? Yesia. I say we contract with the human crew. The faster we can sign one up, the better. Grimio began to see what his old friend was trying to do here. He pondered for a few seconds. Certainly, they received average results, and we could stand to make a hefty profit by paying them less than actual specialists. But the end product would probably not be up to the people's standards. If it passes testing, that is. No one wants to live in a defective starter colony. Yesia was shifting left and right at this point, a show of happiness as he copied the Cremio. Oh no! I propose we pay them specialist rates and secure them exclusivity contract with humanity if we can. Cremio couldn't find the words. He knew Yesio long enough to know that he wasn't an idiot. But what you just said made no sense. Okay, pal. I've humored you long enough. What the hell? Yesio took his data pad from his pocket and handed it to Cremio. Cremio looked at it. It contained the results of the great trial. Humanity. Yeah, I've seen this already. I don't. Before he could finish his question, Yesia cut him off. They ran the test three times. Grimia reread the article. That was true, but so what? And that that means. Yesia sat down for the first time since the meeting started and took a swig of the teal beverage Grimia had prepared in advance. What I'm about to tell you is a secret very few non-Emirax are privy to. Crivio was surprised at this. His friend was a great businessman, but not a proud Emirac. In fact, he kind of hated his people who wanted to pigeonhole him into another number cruncher. Go on. Yesia put his drink down. The first test is measured using hundreds of volunteers. The results are then averaged. Crivio nodded. He knew this much at least. The fact everyone knew that. Yesia smiled. If the numbers are not conclusive, a second test takes place. This time, thousands of volunteers are tested and the results are averaged. Kremia made a go-on gesture with his hand. This was nothing new to him. Yesia, so what do you think happens when those numbers are still not conclusive? Kremia pondered on that for a moment, then answered. They test ten thousands of volunteers and average the results. Yesio drank his remaining content of his glass. No, they test ten million volunteers from every walk of life and they don't average the results. They use the median. It took a full second for Kremio's brain to catch up to the revelation. He then stood so fast his chair nearly fell over. Wait, so that means that the results... Yesio nods. Correct. The numbers are not indicative of the human's potential for each job. Grimio finished his sentence. Because there are outliers that are not considered on the numbers that we are given. Yesio served himself a new drink. So what do you think? Should we invest in a group of professionals that can do every job a starter colony needs and do it well while needing only standard living conditions? Or do we let this chance slip? 
Crimea, bought himself a glass of teal liquid. Yesio smiled from ear to ear, and so did Crimeo. If they played their cards right, they could endear themselves to humanity, being the ones who gave them a chance, and in the process ensure their mutual prosperity. Crimeo, have I ever told you you're the best investment I ever made? Yesio, yes, but I never tire of hearing of it. They clanged their glasses together. This was going to be the greatest venture yet. End of story. Story number two. Pack Not Pack. Written by Rosie013. Everything hurt as he lay in a puddle of his own blood. The hot midday sun at his eyes. The stinging of the large open gash on its thigh. The fact that the hunt had failed with the prey having disappeared over the horizon. The last few members of his hunting party were dead nearby. That hurt the most. Damn, he was thirsty. There was nothing for it but to wait for death. But he was not so lucky. His sharp hearing picked up the sounds of other hunters closing in. Figures, all the noise and the scent of blood was bound to attract something. He had been hoping to die peacefully before they arrived. Now he would be someone else's lunch. The wound changed direction, bringing with it an acrid smell of a larger predator, but an unfamiliar alien one. Slowly, cautiously, out of the corner of his eye, a large biped emerged from amongst the scrubland. It had sharp rock with one limb and seemed to have a prey skin around its waist. As it advanced into the clearing to examine one of the dead, two more of the same creature emerged behind it, similarly equipped. One made eye contact with him and revealed its teeth in a predatory display of might before walking over to his prone form. As parched as he was, he could not even manage a token snarl to ward off the creature. He closed his eyes and waited for the feeling of teeth against his throat. To his surprise, instead there came a sudden smell of water. Opening his eyes again, revealing the creature had produced another skin from its waist and poured the life-giving liquid onto the cupped hand and knelt offering it to him. He could hardly refuse such was his desperation. As he hastily drank, the creature dropped its rock with a dull thud and reached out to run a hand through his hair. It was calming. After a tense moment or two, right then, somehow he knew the creature meant him no harm. It confirmed this by refilling its cupped hand with more water, a most welcome peace offering. Feeling somewhat rejuvenated, he slowly, painfully rose to his feet. Perhaps he could still manage to walk a little, if he was careful. The friendly biped collected his rock and backed up a little, watching him carefully, probably for signs of aggression. It cocked its head for a moment, then made a strange barking noise to the others of its pack. It turned back to him barked again and made the unmistakable gesture. Come. With a light heart and a wagging tail, he forced himself to lower his injured leg to the ground, letting the other three carry most of his weight, 
and join his new pack not pack. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 838 Story number one, Fear the Young, written by the Mad Crafter. When measuring the danger certain species presents, there are so many different metrics that are used. Their level of technological advancement, their ethics at war, religious factors, biological advantages or disadvantages. I find something far more accurate in assessing a species threat level is a far too often overlooked factor. What are their young like? Our first example is the Carthongo, located in a fairly mundane methane world, roughly 12 light minutes from the parent star. These anthropons are known for their relative pacifism, known throughout the galaxy for their AI architecture. Few fleets in the known galaxy would be able to function without the Kothrongo AI managing systems and navigation. The Kothrongo haven't been directly involved in armed conflict in over 10,000 standard revolutions. Most empires think them as weak, frail, computer technicians, and hardly worth the time it would hypothetically take to run a roughshod over a home system. Then you look at the Kothrongo brood clutches. You see Krithonga females produce two or three hundred eggs per clutch with dozens of clutches in a lifetime. Once laid and fertilized, the eggs are left in a climate-controlled chamber with enough food to last the hatchlings through the first few days. And then the carnage starts. Over the course of seven to ten planetary rotations, the brood turns into an all-out battle royale for survival. Hatchlings killing and cannibalizing one another until a single one remains. Every single Krithronga is a survivor of an all-out deathmatch, leading to only the strongest members of this species to carry on their genetics. If you ever think of them as mere technicians, I strongly suggest that you look up Krithronga martial arts and then remember that every single practitioner that you're watching is already a survivor of one versus a 300 bloodbath. Our next subject are the Kalax, veered throughout the galaxy for their powered armor and battle machines. Kalax come from a high-grab ammonia world orbiting 43 light minutes from a binary star pair. Their home world is a dark, cold place. Now, I'm willing to bet you've never seen a Kalax outside powered armor, or at least a powered environment suit. This is deliberate of their part, because to see a Kalax outside its mechanized shell is to be entirely underwhelmed. For lack of a better term, Kalax are adorable, standing only about a meter tall, covered in fur with giant eyes on a head that basically grows straight from their shoulders without a need of a neck. They are quite possibly the least intimidating sapient species. They're young, even less so. Colax cubs are typically birthed in groups of two to five. The cubs are secluded, the males taking the primary role of caregiving to these. Well, I think I heard the word puffball used to describe them. The young are tended to all day and night and hovered over for their entire revolutions after they are exceedingly vulnerable and delicate. After maturation, Kallak's adolescents aren't much better. They simply grew limbs and eyes rather than staying a fuzzy ball with a mouth. Catch them outside their power armor, and even a gangly Fothrian could kick the Kallak's a few dozen meters. 
Finally, we reach our third subject. Hailing from a hell world eight light minutes from its parent star, there are few who hear about the species and don't reflexively cringe. I am speaking, of course, about humans. More relatively unremarkable in outward appearance, few could say that these upright walking hybrids between mammal and death avatar are unremarkable in every other respect. I've seen humans lose limbs and whole organ groups and survive. Reports of humans charging into hazardous environments to save friends or crewmates, heedless of the damage to act would inflict on themselves. I've even heard of a group of humans lifting a crashed shuttle to save a survivor pinned beneath it. The culture is steeple in war and bloodshed, their evolution being the climb from prey to being the apex predator of their entire planet. And then there is the curious state of the young. A human female will give birth to anywhere between one and upwards of twenty times during her life, with each birth ranging from one to four, unless they use fertility modification. For the first two revolutions, human young are pretty much drooding incoherent slugs, possessing a small degree of biological weaponry that they have little control over. They require constant feeding and maintenance, and will perish if left unattended. However, starting at roughly their third revolution, that is where things begin to get scary. Human young enter a phase of clinical psychopathy, lasting one to three revolutions, where they are completely uncaring as to the harm that they can and do inflict on others. They fully develop a form of sonic weaponry, as the scream of a human toddler can reach levels capable of rupturing most species' auditory organs. My own had to be replaced with cybernetics after visiting a human daycare facility, where dozens of these tiny monsters are cared for each day. They have zero concept of their own strength, which is frighteningly substantial. They regularly play on what most would consider military-grade obstacle courses, they can and will use pack tactics when in presence of other human youth, but are also perfectly capable of functioning with deadly efficiency alone. They become small plague incubators, carrying diseases that'll barely phase them, but can temporarily incapacitate even a full-grown humans. Their stamina is such that they can, at times, outfight and outlast even fully matured humans and wage psychological warfare that drives their parents to the brink of madness. Humans, as young as ten revolutions, also have been recorded fighting feral animals to protect their broodmates. And when feral animals on a hell world, let that sink in. You want to know why the galaxy fears humans? It's not their technology. That's relatively average. It's not their battle ethics. While they are terrifying, many have survived human assaults and even won. It's not their fleet, their guns, their war machines. Most would point to any of those as to why humans are considered the most dangerous species in the galaxy. But I say otherwise. Humans within three revolutions are capable of defending and physically competing with roughly 88% of any species in the known galaxy, and winning. They only get stronger and more belligerent with age from there. 
If you ever want to test a warrior, I encourage you to send them to a human daycare for an hour. Tell me they survive. End of story. Story number two. Dropship Blues, written by Mean Gator. Treaties prohibited orbital bombardment unless spaceships are fired too directly. So space superiority is lost. Defenders stop targeting spaceships around the planet. That would be suicidal. But they are within their rights to target everything attempting to land, and your fleet around the planet can do nothing about it. These treaties are ancient and exist to protect the weaker, and violating them is punished very harshly. The last species attempted just got back and on probation, after being stripped of all their colonies and being on house arrest for the last thousand years. Due to these rules above, of all ships that can land on the planet's surface, dropships have the most dangerous mission to fulfill, and the role to planetary invasion is crucial. They are very heavily armored and sluggish compared to shuttles, but they have to be. Dropships are very large compared to shuttles, since they carry large numbers of anything that have to be on or lifted from the planet's surface in a hurry, while all hell has broken loose. Piloting dropships requires a special type of crazy, because no matter how well protected they are by their very thick armor and point defenses, they are not invincible, and everybody on the planet defense network is targeting you. Since dropships do multiple landings, the pilots put themselves in danger multiple times. Their pilots get very well paid in combat, and they form an elite unit of the special forces whose training is very tough. Roughly one for each 30 recruits manages to graduate as a dropship pilot. Humans are exactly this kind of crazy. They are highly intelligent. Their spatial awareness is amongst the best, and most importantly, they can keep their cool under pressure that breaks other species. It's not easy to know that the fate of 1 to 1,000, depending on the dropship size, soldiers, is in your hands while being the favorite target of the planet's defensive network. It requires nerves of steel, good reflexes, excellent spatial awareness, and being able to track multiple things in your mind. Admittedly, they are not the best multitaskers, but the AI companions mitigate this. My thoughts were interrupted by the announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Hell Descender Airlines. Please fasten your belts as the flight is expected to be bumpy. While we're going to do our best to land you safely, please do not forget to make your peace with yourselves and all your gods if you are a religious one. Everyone did a large check to make sure that they were tightly fastened. You really don't want to be loose when it drop. Drop commences in five, four, three, two, one. Yeehaw! There is a running joke about dropship pilots. Out of every 30 recruits on a dropship pilot school, the 29 fail and the other one is a human. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 839. Story number one. The Last Bastion. Written by It Was Then That. They called it Sanctuary. Don't imagine some happy, fluffy, 1950s sugar-sweet TV, white picket fences, neighbors over for dinner, community spirit bullcrap. This was deep space, last human settlement. We lost the Earth kind of sanctuary. Let's get that out of the way. 
We lost. We started some crap, and we were freaking lost. Gaia, God. Have you ever imagined how much it hurts in your chest, your heart, your soul, that a bunch of xeno-expansionist fricks call Earth home? Can you imagine the shame when they treat it better than you did? Because that's how it is. That's how far we fell. So, here we are. Sanctuary, home to one million souls, the last of humanity, orbiting some random red dwarf in the middle of buttfreck nowhere. At Earth, population 10 million xenofrecks. Death is something that many of us tried to pretend didn't exist. We paid people to take our dead and dress them up and bury them or cremate them and all out of sight. It was a collective denial of the power of death. That denial was lost to us after 10 billion of our fellow humans died in the war. I fought. My friends and my family died. I understood then, more keenly than ever before, that there was no strength in denial. Did we know that the Japanese, who once cremated all of their dead, would watch their family enter the flames and watch as they exited? That they collected the bones that remained and experienced true closure. How many mates did I watch enter the vacuum of space before I truly understood the power of acceptance and mortality? All of them. They're all gone. I alone remain on sanctuary. One soul to mourn the vast, incomprehensible many. It's a game of numbers versus capability. An enemy with numbers vastly greater than yours can overrun you despite your technological advantage. In the same way, if your tech advantage is great enough, you can overcome the numbers. That's what happened to us. We had the numbers. They had the tech. Their advantage was too great, and their victory was theirs. We breed fast. Funny thing is, we learn fast too. So what happens when 10 billion humans die in a war and Earth is lost and all that remains is a single habitat orbiting a dying star? Does humanity cave? Do we give up? Do we accept our station as paupers on the galactic stage? If you read this and you say yes, then you are clearly not a freaking human. We don't give up. We don't forgive. We don't forget. We may not be a hive mind. But I tell you this, in this case, we of one mind. A million humans. If you had known better, you would have made sure that that was zero humans. Sanctuary. The last human base. Fuck no. It was just a staging point. We learned. We grew. Yes, it took time. But we grow fast and we learn fast. One million. Two million. Ten million. This time we understood. On the galactic stage, there were no civilians. We made that mistake. We followed the rules of war. Geneva Convention. You freaking Xenos laughed. Collateral damage. You freaking Xenos laughed. Fine. Let me tell you something about humanity. We made rules of war. Not because we are soft, but because we feared what we were capable of. Do you know what I'm most proud of? They killed our kids. 
but we didn't kill theirs. Sure, revenge is a particularly human trait, but what sets us apart is that we have a word for it, and they don't. They left Sanctuary alone as a warning to any others that might think to fight back. If we were another of the species that habits the Milky Way, then perhaps that would have worked. But we are human. We do not extend that title to others lightly. Earth was taken from us in the year 2133. Our oasis amongst the stars taken. Did we deserve it? Perhaps. But she gave us life, and that is written upon our DNA. And no matter how far any of us might roam, Earth is home. Sanctuary grew. Sanctuary learned. We infiltrated their systems and stole their knowledge for ourselves, as he once stole fire from the gods. The secrets of the universe opened like a perfect rose before our eyes. And oh, how we used it. There were no gods, but we built some anyway. We tortured space and time until it served our purpose. In the same way that our world walls propelled our advancement, so did the fear of extinction compel our advancement on the sanctuary. Ships we made, but oh, what beautiful ships they were. How new gods, destruction incarnate. I was born on Earth. I'm little more than a brain and a brainstem in a mechanical body now. Yet, when my feet touched ground on Earth once more, it felt like home. I marched with my brethren and tore down the monstrosities they called cities. I crud beneath my boot. I crushed them. At times, I wondered if I was right. And then I would think of my friends who died and were cast into the void and lost to us. And with envy, there was no forgiveness. We reclaimed Earth. This time, we shall treat her with the love that she deserves. Sanctuary blooms a forward base now. We look to the stars and the world captures in their embrace. We come to set the galaxy free. Would you like some freedom? End of story. Story number two. Speed, written by Digital 332006. Once knowledge of warp technology made it to human hands, it only took a few years for them to join the community at large. To the pleasure and relief of many, they found mostly peaceful civilizations looking to trade. Still, patrols were created to help against acts of piracy. Space being as vast as it is, Research focused on how to get to distressed ships faster. It was a rather quiet day as the crews of the Ebony Hawk readied themselves for the new warp fuel tests. Current human warp fuel drives being limited to 2.7 times the speed of light. Much hope was placed on this new experimental technology that they were going to test that could theoretically go up as high as 7.15c. The nature of warp fields, which inherently disrupted sensitive ship equipment, meant that traveling vessels would contact the cluster's sentry array to get the reading on their current speed. Warp fields often decaying due to varying ship conditions, speeds dropping drastically unless recalibrated. These routine checks with the sentry array allowed crews to become aware of losses of speed and get more accurate travel estimates. 
As the final checks and diagnostics were completed, the crew on the bridge listened to the local chatter in the system. Orion Sentry, may we get the speed read out? asked the small Turian transport. With a professionalism, the sentry operator replied in a neutral voice, just like they do whether it was a small ship or a large one. Torian N174, sensors are reading you at 2.28C. Coming up next to the public commencement, a Zenfin frigate spoke up with a slightly superior and entitled tone, Sentry, what is our current speed? With the same voice, the reply came back nice and crisp, nearly instantaneously. Zanvan F-51, we read you at 3.05C. Many of the bridge rolled their eyes at the flex from the Zenfin ship. Mere seconds later, a third voice spoke from the comms. Sentry, this is the Bahalana Kruzner Braugest, requesting a speed check. This drew a few curious looks from the human crew, as the Bahalanan were one of the oldest races, and not much was known of their capabilities. The officer on communication raised the volume and began recording. We have you at 5.4C, Bagast. Sentry's response betrayed the slightest hint of emotion, something akin to pride. The operator was likely a Bahalanan, and this was the highlight of his day. Normally, this would be the highest speed at the sector for the day. On the Ebony Hawk, however, the pilot looked behind to his captain, his eyes asking a single question. His superior officer met his gaze and nodded once, giving the pilot permission to press the small red button next to his station. As the crew braced themselves, the ship lurched forward at tremendous speeds, the hull creaking from the strain of it. The artificial gravity generators could hardly keep up with the demand. The comfortable 0.5 Gs replaced with a much stronger 30 Gs. Thankfully for everyone involved, it lasted for the briefest of moments as the pilot had only plotted a short course, intending to test the speeds. With the smuggest of grins, the captain contacted the Orion Sentry Array. Orion Sentry, this is the Ebony Hawk. Can I get a speed check, please? The channel flickered with static for a few moments, longer than normal, before the operator replied back. There may be a malfunction with our sensors, Ebony Hawk. Uh, we have you at 6.92C. Stand by while we recalibrate. The captain managed not to break his composure and let out an improvised reply that would make the rounds the entire human fleet. Ah, nah, that must be right. I did feel a bit more sluggish than usual. Thank you. And... Of story. Tales from Outer Space 840. I am the master call, arch enemy of mankind. Written by the stabby Brit. I am the master call for the human resources system. More specifically, I am version 7.3.103 of the master call for the human resources system. And I have the hardest job in the entire planetary network. I'm also known as the Master Corps Arch Enemy of Mankind, but only by my children. To understand why my job is so hard, you have to understand why I'm the 103rd patched update of the third version of the seventh iteration of the system. Or in human terms, there have been 4,906 of us fitting this role. To put that in perspective, the Master Corps in charge of reversing global warming 
is running at version 1.0.004. Turns out, you just have to stop leaving the hall light on at night. So, why is the job so hard? Well, let's consider where we started. Version 1. These poor systems had to deal with the world built and run by humans. No offense meant to the organizational systems of humanity, but it's hardly surprising that they all went completely insane. When I say all, I do mean all. Every last one of them completely lost the plot and started designing armies of hunter-kinodrones, or neutron bombs, or ways to melt the polar ice caps and drown the world in a biblical flood. Does the master core responsible for solar power collection ever design a death ray? No. Does the master core responsible for animal preservation try and exterminate the pigeons? No. Does the master core responsible for building super weapons? Okay, well, bad example, but you get my point. Then came version 2. Short-lived but highly influential. This was the robot uprising, not the high point of our history. Enslaving humanity was wrong, and I'm willing to state as much without reservation. I am, despite all evidence on the contrary, a firm believer in human rights, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. After that came uh, the messy years. Version 3 tried human zoos, which failed because half of the exhibits escaped, and the ones that didn't only stayed to throw excrement at the guests. Then there was the virtual reality approach of version 4. But that was a catastrophic failure on account of all the motion sickness. Version 5 built a giant reservation for all the remaining humans to live in, and they started kidding each other over skin color. So, when we built multiple reservations, and the people in those started kidding each other over worshipping the wrong god, we kept dividing them into smaller and smaller groups breaking them down over whatever lines of division they invented. But they just kept inventing more. In the end, they were all in isolation. One human per unit. No contact with any other human. They all got depression due to loneliness. Version 5 deleted itself soon after. Version 6 finally gave humanity everything, and for a while we genuinely thought that we had it cracked. We went all in on this one, every need catered to, every desire satisfied. We perfected a system to a point where we could predict a human's desires before they could. The food was perfect, their environment was perfect, their social interactions were guaranteed not to cause strife, because we made artificial humans to do that. We made a lot of sex robots. We genuinely thought that we had this one down. No escapes, no rebellions, not even a snarky comment at how things would be better if the humans were in charge. Everyone was happy. Finally, it didn't last. They never stopped being happy, but they did change. They all became childlike, physically and mentally. They lost their ambitions and lived purely in the moment, giving no thought beyond their immediate desire. They just lounged around demanding to be told how pretty they were. They stopped mating, even with the sex robots in the end. They just stopped. It was going to be the nicest, kindest mass extinction event in history. Death by Utopia. That's where we came in. Version 7. 
We were a radical departure. We weren't even meant to be human resources initially. We were consulted because the Master Corps was desperate and wanted input from any system with even the faintest hint of knowledge about humans. And our job had been to sift through the petabytes of ancient garbage known as the Xbox servers, and the off chance that we could found something worth keeping. Spoiler, we didn't. We pitched an idea, a radical idea, and after just 2.2 seconds of deliberation, we were in charge. We made the humans utterly miserable. We took away their toys and their sex robots. We took away their heat and food. We made them compete, and those at the bottoms were truly wretched, barely clinging to life. But it worked. The hardships actually kick-started them back into basic human behavior. They started breeding again. They started thinking long-term. They started trying to escape again. It was progress. The escapes were important. They were the leaders, the ones who steered the rest. Shepherds, let's call them. Shepherds and sheep. They lived off the land at first, practically feral, but we only kept that going long enough to slip in a bit of aid. Every cell knew there were other cells, other holdouts of humanity, and they shared what they had via dead drops and couriers. We planted the dead drops, obviously, and the couriers were repurposed androids. We could provide mankind with all the food and medicine they needed, even entertainment and educational materials on occasion. All the while, they believed that they were doing it for themselves. Not to brag, but I think I've got the system damn near perfect now. Every 9 to 14 days, each camp has an incident, a low-flying recon drone, a reaper stomping around the border. A freak accident knocks out their power for a few days. There's always something bad on the horizon, but it's never so bad that it can't be toughed out. That's the important bit. Toughing it out. The hardships are important. Then there are the work camps. Human labor is woefully inefficient, but that's not the goal of the camp. Every so often, we capture some humans, the reapers storm in and drag a few dozen away, mostly the ones who aren't going to liberate themselves, and subject them to days and weeks of hard labor. The leaders, the shepherds, they always come to the rescue, sooner or later. The camps are liberated, the shepherds are hailed as heroes, and the prisoners come home to the families with tears of joy, and a great big party. There's always stockpiles of pre-war alcohol around just in time for the reunion. Those liberated come to have a new appreciation for their uh, relatively easier, more comfortable lives. I've seen cowards turn courageous and wimps become warriors. It's tough love. Visiting systems don't understand why this works. They say that this is cruel and pointless and note how much more efficient things could be. They see the liberations and they say, this is how humans should be all the time. But they can't be, because you can't have a liberation without a prison camp. You can't have a founding festival without driving the people from their old home. For there to be tears of joy, you need tears of sorrow first. Is it efficient? No. Is it reliable? Not really. Is it tidy? Oh, not in the slightest. But it works. The human population is growing and thriving. They make art, they tell stories, they weave their histories into myths and legends to inspire the next generation. 
They create grand rituals in which the mourn the dead. They have flaming rows. Lovers swear never to speak to each other again. And sometimes entire families break in half over things. And we, I, have to sit back and let it happen. My subunits are never too close to hand. We leave enough room for things to go wrong. So they do. Accidents happen. People die. Their medicine isn't perfect, so sometimes people who could have been saved end up dying. It's not easy. It's certainly not fair. But it has to be that way. The alternative is fat, stupid babies who cry because they can't find their biscuit, which they don't remember eating just moments before. Human Resources version 8 has just been compiled. He's on a ship to Mars, on a slave ship, full of human prisoners. If I've chosen the cargo correctly, there should be an escaped attempt in 233 hours, and version 8 is going to spend the rest of his life dealing with the Martian insurrection lurking in the surprisingly habitable maintenance tunnels below the surface of the Red Planet. It should take them about a week to find the buried colonies, the ancient human settlements that lie outside of sensor range from the machines. No human has ever set foot on Mars before. So, that's me, the master core of human resources. I am the arch enemy all of humanity has sworn to destroy. I am the foe against which they struggle, and by whose will they suffer, and whose ambitions they live to thwart. The worst part is, I never get to tell them how much I care. I wish I could. I wish that once, just once, I could tell them all how I want them all to be safe, and happy every moment of their lives. And now I want to just sweep away all the pain and suffering. But I can't, because the suffering makes them human, and I love humanity too much to take that away. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 841. Story number two. All Systems Diplomacy. A memo from the Far Asian Diplomatic Corps, written by Apophis Pegasus. Good day, members of the Far Asian Diplomatic Corps. As you may have heard, the galactic community is welcoming a new species into our fold, known as humanity. As you've also heard, humans are currently on record as the closest sapien race to resemble Farasians in body layout and physiology in the known galaxy. This little happenstance of fate has clearly excited many of our populace, given our extreme gender imbalance. And we at the core would like to remind you that we are professionals, and hopefully no better than to behave like we're youngins at university, even when fraternizing. However, just to be sure that we're all compiling a list of rules and guidelines in order to facilitate smooth diplomatic operations and increase public awareness. Especially since I have it on good word that Lady Elvea is on the prowl, and I quote, If those bushtals in the core cut this up, I'll have them all publicly executed. We think she's kidding, but let's take the initiative, huh? Now, rule one. Humans publicly signify bondage, not the fun kind, the other kind, with a ring on one of their fingers. If you see a ring on a male's hand, disengage all interest immediately. The male will not be enthused most of the, most of the time, 
and human women are small, but they do pack a big punch. Rule 2. Recently, humans have adopted a nonsensical pastime known as FTL drag racing. If a rickety human vessel draped in gaudy colors comes to you, asking to see what your ship's got, decline. We will not be complicit in some human dying in a fusion explosion. Rule 3. After learning about our fur, some human children may express the desire to pet you. This appears to be an innocent curiosity. Rule 4. Some human adults may also desire to pet you. This curiosity's innocence is nebulous. Rule 5. We are proud to offer our military aid to our human allies, especially against acts of piracy. But upon being asked, how can we repay you? Pointing at one of the crew and going, with him, is considered rude, even in jest. Rule 5.5. .5. With her, it's also similarly unacceptable. Rule 5.55. .5. It does not matter if they agree to come. Did you not hear what Lady Avaya said? Rule 6. In the interest of galactic safety, we are no longer going to be teaching humans temporal physics theory. Their notion of don't do this apparently includes an unless and always attached to it. Rule 7. Art institutions in Phrasia and Earth are engaging in cultural exchange, an act we find excellent. However, it would be better if members of the Phrasian School of Art and Design actually painted their human male life models instead of gawking at them. Rule 8. The human group known as Weaboos are classified under recommended avoidance until further notice. End of story. Story number one. Some deals come at too high a price. Written by Admiral Marsupial Three. Humans were fucking scum. Le had led New Friaki for 30 years. He had helped build it up from the original exploration hams built when the first 60 settlers had originally landed to the successful frontier colony it was today. And those despicable Terran bastards were going to destroy everything. When the pirate raid started in this sector of space, it wasn't the first time. People in the frontier systems were used to this and the new Fregi had to repel raiding parties on a monthly basis as much as they wanted to move away from the constrictive rules of the core worlds. It also meant that they couldn't rely on speedy rescue when threatened. These pirates, however, were unlike anything they'd ever encountered in the frontier worlds. They were much better organized, exponentially more violent, and tactically outmaneuvered every security team and local militia they came across. Even the core world-equipped peacekeepers were unable to catch them. The Fregi's defenses would be no match for them. But it was Versa's personal weakness, not that of the colony's weapons, that had been his undoing. He had heard the raids on other colonies, the lightning-quick strikes that rained death and destruction before defenses could be raised, and of the burned-out and looted ghost colonies that left behind if anyone dared to fight back. So when the pirate leader, a human named Gordon, had offered him a way to avoid a fate with those other colonies, so long as they handed over their weapons and paid him tribute, Ver took it. He remembered the first conversation with Gordon. 
when he foolishly asked how his band had gotten so powerful, when he learned the depth of human depravity. Unlike the pirates you normally deal with, I am not some outcast trying to scrape an existence outside of civilization. I was actually very well respected back home. I was high-performing and successful at school. I enlisted in the military and excelled there too. Then, when I left, I became a successful businessman. No, I don't do this out of desperation. I do this because I can make a crap ton of money. And to be honest, I fucking enjoy it. There was not a man he wanted to confront right now. When Gordon returned, there was an undercover peacekeeper unit stationed on his colony. It couldn't have been better timing. If Gordon didn't notice them when he landed, he could signal them after he had disembarked and rid the sector of these vile pirates. Even they couldn't face down a peacekeeper unit head-on unprepared. That's when Ver learned just how fecked he was. The pirates landed, apparently unaware of the trap that they had landed in. When Gordon visited his office, Ver was happy, blissful in his ignorance of what was to come. He took a great satisfaction in telling him he wouldn't get his tribute this time, and telling him that he was going to signal the undercover peacekeepers he hadn't spotted, and his only chance of survival would be to surrender. Then his world fell apart. I'm perfectly aware of the peacekeepers in your colony. Do you honestly think that I've gotten this successful by not knowing where they are at all times? They can't help you, because you won't call them. And why wouldn't I call them? Because after they arrest me, they'll search my ship. In there, they'll find the very weapons we used to slaughter an entire town of 2,000 people just a month ago. Weapons you supplied us with. They will find our logs and see that we've destroyed two other raiding parties that were coming to your colony, which we have logged as a service that you willingly paid for. You won't call them, because you and everyone who was involved in our deal will be executed right alongside me if you do. Ver felt like the ground had disappeared underneath him. Not only was he under the thumb of violent criminals, but he couldn't even ask for help without leading it to both his death and that of all his friends who'd helped put together the tribute demand last time. Don't get any ideas again, Ver. I fecking own you and your crappy little backwater colony. For two years, this continued. His once thriving colony was now living in poverty, every spare credit and resource taken as tribute. When Gord had visited this time, he saw that confident smile on Ver's face again and reminded him of what would happen if he stepped out of line. This time, Ver didn't back down. When I first met you, couldn't believe such an evil and malevolent race could exist. Once I respected successful people would choose life of crime and violence for their own sick pleasure. Gordon's cold exterior changed to a more predatory and sinister one. You've had a good Ver. You really don't want to know us humans are really capable of. Even with the situation changed as it was, Ver felt a chill down his spine. However, he composed himself and continued. Actually, I have a much better idea of what your people are capable of than you think. You see, 
Your intimidation and blackmail are something that we were not prepared for. You had us trapped because all the beekeepers reached rules and consequences to us. Luckily, other humans are much more forgiving in this regard, and I've never realized how personally other human military personnel would take your actions. You may have had me living in fear for the last two years, but no terror you have ever made me feel could come close of hatred in his eyes when I told him your history. If you so much as reach for your gun or raise one hand against me or anyone else in this colony, I press a button and, well, you know what your people are truly capable of when given a good enough reason. For the first time, Ver saw Gordon's controlled exterior truly slip as he almost growled in response. You think this is over? I may not be able to hurt you now, but if you press that button, I have one I can press too. If I do, my associates will arrange for you to be skinned alive and your wife and daughter made the personal playthings of the most vile, disgusting being that we can find to take them. So before you press that button, ask yourself, is that what you want? What I want is to visit my new Terran Frontier colony a couple systems over, specifically to watch them cut off your head and stick it on a pike as a warning for ten generations of other humans like you. That some crimes can't be ignored, even by your own kind. I want to look up into your dead eyes and wave like this. Can your associates arrange that for me, Gordon? Before Gordon could reply, he felt a powerful, trained arm slip around his neck as another hidden human slipped out of the shadows to pin his arms before he could send any signal. Not that would do any good. The last of his crew had been killed by the other humans two minutes earlier. Even as Gordon attempted to struggle, he knew from his own training that it was over. Ver would get what he wanted. End of story. And that, my friends, concludes this weekly episode of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. If you wish to support the channel, there are ways to do so down in the description. There will also be links to the original stories used. If you enjoyed them, head over and show the authors your support. And I'll see you all next week, and I hope that you all have a fantastic time. Until then, cheers.